welcome. Today we're going to talk about topic three. Yes, lovely topic: electrolytes and acid-base balance. Um, electrolytes, you guys are pretty familiar with those. Um, you've seen it on almost daily basis, so I'm not gonna worry too much. We're gonna we do we will touch base on those, um, but then we're gonna focus a lot more on acid-base. Okay. Without further ado, let's get to it, shall we? Here we go. First, uh, when we talk about fluids, you need to understand that your body is have tons and tons of fluids. So, and your body water is actually made up of two things. One is called ICF, uh, intracellular fluid, intracellular fluid, and ECF is extracellular fluid. So, ICF, intra, intracellular, that's referring to inside your cell. So intra mean inside. So inside your cell, you have a two-third of your body is actually, you have water there. So majority of your water is actually inside your cell, which is a good thing because if it comes out, you're going to have edema, you're going to have all kinds of problems. So majority of your water stay inside your cell, keep your cell working, keep your cell nice and round. So that's the good thing. You have 28 liters, so two-thirds of your body is actually from uh, your liquid is inside your cells. Uh, ECF, extracellular fluid. So these fluids actually on the outside of your cell and could be anywhere outside of your cell. Okay, it make up make up of two main ones would be the interstitial fluids, which is 11 liters, and then you have the intravascular fluid, which is about five liters or so. Okay, so interstitial fluid, those are the fluid that between your cells, anywhere that kind of think of uh, if you have a cell like a ball, uh, so uh, you're holding a ball. So basically, the interstitial fluid is the fluid uh, that's supporting that ball. So let's say you were thrown at that ball in the whoop, uh, in the pool. So you have that pool is the uh, interstitial fluids. That's 11 liters. And you also have intravascular fluids. Uh, that's the fluid inside your blood vessel. That's 5 liters. Fun fact and something you should know is that um, how many liters can you lose before your heart stops? Okay, uh, think about that. Uh, this is very important if you work in OR. you actually seen this in OR already. So we actually keep track of how much blood that you lose in the OR from everything from your gauze to everything else. The reason being is, is because of the Stirling Law, uh, if, the, if you lose certain amount of water, if you lose a certain amount of liquid, your heart will not have enough pressure to actually press on those walls of the heart, causing your heart to stop. Okay, and that magic number is two liters, two liters. So that's why um, that's 2,000 cc, 2,000 cc or 2,000 ml. So in in during the surgery, we keep an eye on how much blood you lose. So if you lose 500 cc, you could replace with um, with um, you know, saline. Um, if you lose more than a thousand cc, which is one liter, you, you we better actually give you some blood. Uh, Fifteen hundred. That's kind of dangerous. Okay. Other type of fluid you have: lymphs, CSF, sweat, urine, synovial joints. All of those are minute comparing to the uh, the other three that we talked about. Okay. Uh, to put that in perspective, you actually here you could see here. Uh, I have the intravascular fluid, so fluid that inside your blood vessel, 
that's five liters. You have the interstitial fluid, fluid that between your cells at 11 liters, and fluid that inside your cells at 28 liters. And both of these, uh, intravascular, um, intravascular make up the extracellular fluids. Intravascular make up the extracellular fluids. Okay, so those fun terms get out of the way. Now, more fun terms for you to learn. And these are the important terms. You could actually put a star on this page because you need to know these terms here. Okay, and we will talk about them. I'm going to show you um, in picture of what these, these terms actually mean. Okay, um, we will come back to osmolarity, but we will cover all of these. Okay, okay, let's talk about osmotic and hydrostatic pressure first. Okay, so let's say this is your capillaries. Capillaries. So this is this is from the arterioles, and you have the arteries coming in, and this is your capillaries, and this is going to your vein, your venous end. Okay. Um, so let's look at the picture. So first, let's talk about hydrostatic pressure. So hydrostatic. So hydraulic, hydrostatic. So hydrostatic is the water pressure. Okay, water pressure. So this water pressure when it actually start coming here toward the arterial end, you have 32 millimeter of mercury. You have 32 millimeter of mercury pushing out the water. You have 32 millimeter of mercury pushing out the water here. And on the venous end, it actually drops down to only 12 millimeter of mercury on this side. 12 millimeter of mercury. So you have tons. Think of it as like a, a big hose, a gigantic um, fire, fire hydrant hose. As it get, gets through the pipe, um, you, you have stuff leaking out through that pipe. Um, the pressure of that water become less and less as you go along. So toward the arterial end, you have 32. And then toward the venous end, you have only 12. The opposite one is the osmotic pressure. Osmotic pressure is the water pressure, osmosis, you think of the term osmosis, that's the water going from the higher pressure to the lower pressure. That osmotic pressure is the water pressure that pushing back in, okay? So hydrostatic push out, so lift or push out. So think of hydraulics, think of hydrostatic pushing out. So you're pushing up or pushing out. And then osmotic, you think of it sucking it in. You're sucking that in. Okay, sucking in. So osmotic is constant throughout uh, throughout this area. It's 25 millimeter of mercury. So if you do the math here, everything here is 25. On this end here, you have 32 pushing out, only 25 pushing in. So majority of the time, you more likely will push out the, uh, you're going to push out the, the, the stuff. Uh, which is good. Like this is the exact purpose of capillaries. You know, you delivering that oxygen. You're pushing out the oxygen. You're pushing out the nutrients to your cells. Whereas uh, toward this end, to, to, toward the venous end, you have more pressure pushing in uh, than pushing out. So therefore, generally speaking, you're gonna have stuff going into your capillaries, which is good. You carrying putting the carbon dioxide back into the uh, into the vein. You also put in, you know, any waste from your cell back into the vein as well, okay? So that your blood vessel could carry that to the appropriate places. So that's the differences between the uh, osmotic and hydros, uh, hydrostatic. 
hydrostatic pressure. Okay, it's a key terms to remember: osmotic and hydrostatic pressure. Next term you might want to know is called the oncotic pressure. Oncotic pressure. Okay. Uh, oncotic pressure is the pressure of the solute. The more solute you have, let's see. Uh, so let's say you have more stuff here. Let's say you have more solute. The more solute you have, that means your oncotic pressure goes up. Okay. If you have tons and tons of solute, like that, in your blood and solute could be anything could be your protein could be albumin protein uh, could be glucose could be you know, your your red blood cells your white blood cells or any solute uh, that's in your blood if you have more solute notice you have less water right you have less water so therefore if you have the more solute that's mean your oncotic pressure goes up okay and that's mean your oncotic pressure goes up um then your hydrostatic pressure, hydrostatic pressure, um, that's the pressure of the water, okay, that pushing in. Uh, you're gonna actually have uh, the water actually pushing out. Uh, you have less water in here, so then you're gonna have less water being pushed out, okay, you have less water being pushed out. So therefore, most likely, you're gonna have water going inside of yourself. Okay, if oncotic pressure goes up, that means your osmotic pressure also goes up. Osmotic pressure, that means poor pressure of going into yourself. You're going to have more stuff being pushed in because you have less water. Water travel from high, high, high level to low. So if you have less water in here, the water from the outside tra travel inside. Um, okay, so just keep that in mind. So usually we see this in a couple of patients, like people who have dehydration, people who have DI, uh, these will actually have this type um, of presentation. Whereas if you have a low oncotic pressure, meaning that you have very little solute, only very little solute, only a few. So you could see here in this picture on this side, you have tons of water, lots and lots of water. Therefore, you are hydrostatic pressure is going to go up because that water wants to come out. All of these water wants to come out. Okay, so your osmotic pressure then goes down. So your osmotic pressure, if you look at it, it's actually correspond to the oncotic pressure. If oncotic pressure go down, your osmotic pressure goes down. Uh, if your oncotic pressure go up, your osmotic pressure goes up. That's mean the, the, the pressure that pushing stuff in. Um, and it's really based on the stuff that you have inside your blood vessels, okay? Uh, whereas hydrostatic is the opposite to oncotic, which just makes sense. You have more stuff in here, the less pressure you're going to push out. Uh, if you have less stuff in here, you have more water, the, the water pressure in here are going to push stuff out. Okay, so it's the opposite. Um, so in these cases, uh, you oftentimes you have like the patient who have hypertension, DMs, uh, CVD, CSF, all of these tend to have these type of presentations. Okay. Uh, also explaining here, uh, I, all the picture that I put up kind of explain all of these uh, different pressure at different locations uh, and how it actually go. You don't have to really uh, memorize all of these numbers. Just kind of understand the concept that I just mentioned to you. Um, when things come out, when things go, go back in, and how much pressure in on one side, on the other side. 
Uh, just simply put, like I said, the osmotic pressure is the uh, is the pressure of sucking it in. You suck it in back into that uh, um, back into into the blood vessel, and this corresponds with the oncotic pressure. Osmotic, oncotic, all is pretty much the same. If oncotic is up, osmotic also up. Hydrostat hydrostatic is the opposite of oncotic. If you have higher oncotic pressure, your hydrostatic pressure goes down. Okay, so I always think of hyd hydrostatic as like a hydraulics. You push, you push the water out. Whereas osmo osmotic, like onco, when you think of onco, you think of cancer. So cancer sucks. So onco, oncotic pressure. Uh, it sucked, sucked the stuff in. So oncotic pressure is the pressure of solute, which the more solute you have inside your blood vessel, the more water will come in to your body, into your vessels. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna cover this briefly, really quick, but then we'll come back to this again and again and again when we talk about the heart and other systems. So if you don't know the RAS system, know it now. You really gonna need to know the RAS system. That's the one of the one of the question I asked you got you guys at the beginning of topic one uh, to understand the RAS system to see how much you remember about RAS. So we're gonna keep repeating that over and over again, but. The first one uh, is ADH. ADH is anti-diuretics hormone. It's anti-peeing hormone. Uh, if you don't, if you have high level of ADH, uh, high level of ADH, that means you don't really want to pee. Anti-anti-peeing hormone. So if you have high level of that, you don't want to pee. Therefore, you're gonna retain the water. You're gonna uh, retain the water into your body. You're gonna keep the water in. Uh, you're going to pee very little, whereas if you have low ADH, you have very little anti-peeing hormone. Therefore, you're going to pee like no tomorrow. You're going to pee all the time. Okay, uh, Aldosterone is actually, both of these works in the kidney. Work with both, both of these and work in the kidney. We will talk more about where it is in the kidneys later on uh, when we cover renal. But just know that it works in the kidney. Uh, aldosterone. This is um, this is from your brain and vasopressin, same hormone, ADH, uh, from your brain, telling your kidney to reabsorb water, uh, bring the water back in. Aldosterone also work in the kidney. It reabsorbs sodium. Okay, reabsorbs sodium. Water always follows sodium. So put that in your head. Water follows sodium. If we reabsorb sodium, therefore we reabsorb water. Therefore, it does the same thing. So higher the aldosterone, you're not going to pee. You're going to keep the pee to yourself. Keep water to yourself. You're not going to pee out. Whereas these two are the opposite. A and P and B and P, both of these actually from your heart. Uh, ANP and BNP, ANP atrial natriuretic uh, peptide hormone. This will make you pee. BNP also make you pee. Both of these will decrease your blood pressure because you pee out the water. Uh, both of these on the top two, you will keep the water. Therefore, your blood pressure goes up. Okay, so keep those in mind. We're going to cover that over and over and over again uh, until you're sick of it, okay? So BNP, again, is first discovered in the brain, but is actually released by the heart ventricle. So both of ANP, BNP, both of those are in in the heart, but it actually con uh, controls uh, the sodium in the kidney, uh, which means that 
they get rid of sodium, get rid of sodium, therefore you get rid of water, so you pee like no tomorrow, and then your blood pressure drops. Okay, we already talked about these, so we'll look at those again. You probably want to know what albumin does, that's the protein. Albumin, uh, again, has to do with oncotic pressure. If you don't have, if you lose albumin, that's when you have a lower uh, lower oncotic pressure, therefore your osmotic pressure goes down as well and your hydrostatic pressure goes up, um, causing you to uh, more water going into your blood vessels. Okay. Um, you're welcome to uh, watch those videos. Um, we have a lot more to cover, so I just want to kind of keep going. Uh, example of edema, you, have, you could have like cerebral edema, papillary edema uh, that has to do with could be related to diabetes uh, pulmonary edema that could be related to dvt and all kinds of stuff okay first one you should know this one this is called Meniere's disease uh, anytime you see in this class you see a triad that's something you definitely need to know, triad. So these triads. So triad is the key symptoms. Uh, you might want to mark that on your on your paper. That's the key symptom you should know. So Meniere disease is disease that oftentimes happen in older uh, women and men, um, usually in their 40s and 50s. So you start having these three classic symptoms, vertical tinnitus and hearing loss. Okay, vertical tinnitus and hearing loss. Also, something that you may not know, there's a objective versus subjective vertical, okay? So objective versus subjective vertical, and you need to ask your patient whether which one they have. Subjective, meaning that they feel like everything is spinning, okay? They feel like they're spinning, I'm sorry. Subjective, meaning that they feel like they're spinning. Objective, meaning that they feel like the whole world is spinning, or the whole room is spinning. So objective is outside. They feel like stuff outside is spinning. Uh, subjective, that's mean they they themselves feel like they actually been turning and spinning. Tinnitus is the ringing in the ears, and you could have the hearing loss as well. Cause usually is the fluid change in your ear and uh, imbalance of your electrolytes that usually cause the Meniere disease. Um, Sometimes could be allergy, infections, all of these things. Um, signs and symptoms, basically we just base on these three signs. Uh, it's sudden onset, there's no really testing we do. Uh, we just go by clinicals uh, and you might test their hearing loss to see whether they have hearing loss or not. Um, you could do Romberg and heel to toe just to see whether they're in good balance. Uh, to, to do CT, a quick CT, just to make sure that uh, they're not at risk for acoustic neuroma and they, no tumor inside their ear. So, okay. Now we're going to talk about electrolytes. Um, the way we're going to do this, and the thing is, I don't want to spend time with this because you, you for the most part, you already know these. Uh, and I'd rather have you kind of look and search and learn for yourself. Um, so what I'm going to do really with this is I'm going to post a um, a kind of a quiz, but it's not going to count for any point, but it's, uh, but I will use those as, as your participation this week. Um, you will go in and then complete that in a Google form. You're going to write down your name. Uh, make sure that you actually uh, 
sign in into your Google account first before you complete it. Okay, uh, they will ask you to sign in. Otherwise, if you don't sign into your Google account, uh, you won't be able to take that exam because it's on Google form, not exam, but um, just a little worksheet. Just call it worksheet. Don't call it exam. I don't want to give you any anxiety. Uh, okay, so just go in, uh, sign into your Google account, and I will uh, give you the link along with this video. So click on that link, and you're going to go and you can search on the internet search on stuff uh, i will post it um the key the, the answer to those uh, at the end of the week so you will have the answer to those those questions at the end of the week but for now uh for this week just go in and complete that form it's that's a part of your um that's a part of your participation but be sure to watch this whole entire video before you do that because there's other questions on this video as well okay so sodium, um, I'll give you this one, and then you guys could look up the rest. So you have the lab value of sodium, 30, 135 to 145. Uh, you found majority of the sodium is in the ECF. 90% of it is in ECF extracellular fluids. That's usually on the outside. And they, what would the sodium do? Usually, like I said, uh, sodium has to do with the water balance. Uh, you know, you have hormone that actually absorbs sodium, then the water follows sodium. Therefore, uh, you actually retain those water. It also helps with other things like your numeral muscular, um, your nerve impulse, your nerve signal, uh, sodium potassium channel. Without sodium, uh, you won't be able to actually conduct any nerve. You won't be able to send electric. Electro electrical information down your ne neurons. So sodium play a big role. And we also use sodium in terms of nerve block. Uh, so basically the all the all the cocaine stuff, the cane stuff, the cane family. So you have the lidocaine, marcaine, all of those folks. Uh, it's actually a sodium channel blocker. So it's blocked sodium from going in. Therefore you disrupt the 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 electrical chain from that of that neuron to continue on. So you block the sensory information going to uh, from your body going back to your your brain. So so the numbing medication is not really take away um, the problem. The problem is there, but just kind of throw away the fire alarm. So um, pretend that there's nothing there. So we took out the fire alarm. So uh, stop the signal going back to your brain so you, your brain won't register that you have pain. Okay, sodium also play a little bit of, of acid bates, not as much, um, and also help with the, some cellular chemical response as well. Okay, uh, we secrete uh, distal distal tubules, this is where we secrete it, uh, but also several places in the kidney throughout the nephron, you have uh, PCT, uh, lupopenry as well, but majority of them, of them is actually in the distal convoluted tubules, okay? Um, so for sodium, you have a couple of conditions. You could have low sodium, which is quite um, important to know because low sodium, you Usually it's uh, you just lack of you know sodium. Usually it's because you pee out too much sodium, you pee out too much water. You could cause this SIADH uh, symptom of inappropriate ADH. That means you just pee. Uh, you actually um, keeping the sodium um, 
if you have SIADH, usually you you keep the water, so you keep the sodium, but the sodium uh, is in your uh, in your not in your cell, but in in your vascular system, could cause dehydration as well. Uh, CHF is congestive heart failure. You could also have uh, hyponatremia as well, um, eventually. So signs and symptoms, that's something you should know. You're going to have like um, restlessness, uh, lethargic, uh, ALC, and seizures as well. So uh, these are the important things definitely you should know. And you, you guys are familiar with this. You guys see in this uh, in your, at your work quite a bit. So you have lethargy, headache, confusion. Um, the other one, one is hypernatremia. This I think yeah we were talking about hypernatremia sorry thought I was oh hypo uh, yes so this one is hypernatremia is basically is too much sodium in your in your blood uh, you have fever restless restlessness uh, increased fluid retention uh, edema and decreased urine output now fried okay you are fried cause again um, hypernatremia you have di because you're peeing out, um, you're peeing out the uh, the sodium. Uh, you're peeing out water. You're peeing out the water. You become dehydration, uh, hyperaldosteronemia. You have too much aldosterone. Uh, that keeping uh, the sodium in cushion disease also can cause hypernatremia. Uh, corticosteroid can also end up with that as well. Uh, signs and symptoms, you have all of these dehydration signs, confusion, fever, neuromuscular uh, problems, spasms, seizures. Addison um, can be linked to uh, hypernatremia as well. Um, so Addison, basically, you have decreased level because you need to add. So you don't have enough cortisol. Your cortisol level goes down. Okay, your cortisol level goes down, so you need to add into that cortisol. Okay, cause could be autoimmune, could be infection. Usually, um, it pass on uh, from one generation to the next. Uh, signs and symptoms. Uh, since with Addison, you actually have low level of cortisol, so you feel fatigue, you feel tired all the time. You have hypoglycemia, hypotension. Uh, you also have these um, hyperpigmentation, so you want to kind of highlight this term right here. Of all these terms to remember for Addison, remember hyperpigmentation. Hyperpigmentation. And this is the um, the the cause of low level of sugar, uh, low level of cortisol. Uh, you actually cause hyperpigmentation, and especially you're gonna see it on the gum line. Uh, on the in the fingernails, uh, all of these, uh, okay, and you could end up with hypernatremia. Um, also, you could have met metabolic acidosis as well. Okay, metabolic acidosis. Um, you could end up with Addison Addisonian crisis. That means you actually your cortisol is totally completely bottom out. Completely bottom out with your cortisol, you could actually go into shock. Uh, you need to take you know the person to uh, ER right away. For the most part, um, you could test this the way we test this, and something to remember: uh, since they are lack of cortisol, they have very low level of cortisol. So the way you test them, 
you don't inject cortisol in them uh, to see whether it works or not. Because if you inject cortisol directly, uh, you could go from very fatigued to the opposite. It could actually become hyper and then the heart cannot handle it and you the heart could stop. So the way we do is we actually inject the ACTH. ACTH. This is the precursor from your pituitary gland uh, to, to your adrenal gland to tell your adrenal to actually release cortisol. So by injecting ACTH, uh, your body will actually automatically try to increase this cortisol, convert that to cortisol, and then you just kind of perk up right away. Okay. Antibodies right here is actually related to AI. So when you talk about AI, you're going to see antibodies uh, with autoimmune disease. Okay. Autoimmune, think of antibodies. Okay. So we could look at the cortisol level, and usually that's low. And we could do th uh, the 24-hour cortisol test because usually your cortisol level kind of fluctuates throughout the day. We'll talk more about this uh, when we get to uh, endocrine as well. Okay. So Addison, again, autoimmune, most common uh, in the in industrialized world. Uh, signs and symptoms, key term to remember is hyperpigmentation. Testing, again, is ACTH. CT MRI, just to rule out whether you have any tumor in your brain, uh, okay, or even on your uh, adrenal gland as well, okay? Uh, JFK had it, uh, had Addison, and we'll talk more about the endocrine portion next time, in the next three or four weeks, okay? So Addison, you could see this line, these dark lines, see hyperpigmentation, you could see on the skin, you could see on the gum, hyperpigmentation on the gum. A little yellow tint on the pond, that's also hyperpigmentation as well, okay? Cushing, Cushing is the opposite of the uh, Addison. And, uh, Cushing is where you have uh, too much cortisol, too much cortisol. Okay, and usually is caused by the brain uh, most of the time. Most common cause, you have a tumor inside your brain, oh, tumor inside your brain, pressing on your your anterior pituitary, excuse me, causing you to actually release too much cortisol. Uh, cushion, you're gonna have symptom like buffalo hum, okay, trunkal obesity, moon face, all of these moon faces. So it's moon face, uh, not faces as well, moon face, I'm not sure. So buffalo hum, trunkal obesity, moon face, purple striae, all of these are key terms to actually know, to remember for cushion disease. If you don't remember that, just think of Mr. Penguin. If you remember Danny DeVito playing Mr. Penguin uh, with Michael, um, what's it? Uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and I forgot Michael Keaton, I believe. Um, so, uh, so that's the cushion disease. You actually have huge body. Trunkal obesity doesn't mean huge body. Little tiny leg. You might find some of these folks that you know, walking around at Walmart. Uh, huge body, tiny little leg. Uh, buffalo hump is actually a, a hump on their back. Um, it's actually water hump. It's actually not a solid. You press on it, there's actually just tons of water in it. Uh, it's edema. Um, moon face, I mean, their face is nice and round. Uh, and then you have purple striae. Uh, this is not very, look very similar to a, a pregnancy. Uh, 
when you're pregnant, but it's completely different color. This one is reddish purple. Uh, and uh, with pregnant women, usually you just use a coconut oil, those with butter or coconut butter oil, those would go away, but this one, you cannot rub it away, okay? So we test it, we use a cortisol test, 24 hour free cortisol, and usually that goes up. Um, you could test with the MRI, what, that's what we would recommend doing the MRI because that's the most common uh, test for pregnancy as well. Uh, usually that could be, you know, they, they're getting bigger. You, might, you never know, they're just pregnant, okay? We'll talk more about cushion again later on when we talk about uh, in endocrine. Uh, we cover this again in endocrine. So these are, the, like I said, look like Mr. Penguin from Batman. Uh, you have a huge body, small little leg, uh, nice and round face. For women, you could have the thinning of the scalp. You could have acne, hirsutism as well, so growing beard. Um, that's the purple striae. You have ecchymosis, bruising as well. You can see these are purple striae. Those not stretch marks um, from birth. Uh, okay. So chloride, um, some of these stuff you should know already, 98 to 108, that's the uh, lab values. Uh, you have the hyper and hypochloremia, hyper and hypochloremia. Usually hypochloremia has to do with uh, decrease in sodium level and loss of uh, hydrochloric acid. Like when you're throwing up, uh, you're vomiting, then you could actually go into hypochloremia. Um, hyperkalemia, too much chlorine, it's not really uh, dangerous most of the time, you're just going to pee all those out anyway. Uh, hypokalemia, that's something we could do concern a little bit more, you have cyst usually caused by cystic fibrosis. Potassium, you guys want to kind of find these on your own, um, which is not too hard, they're not too, too hard. These are information that you can look up. You could look in your PowerPoint. You should have some of these information there, I believe. Um, and some of them on here as well. I put it on here. So you should be able to find them here. Um, potassium, you're gonna find potassium, most of them inside your cell, whereas sodium, you find most of them outside your cell. Uh, the sodium, potassium, and those are the two huge ones that you should know. Definitely, you should know. Uh, you guys could read through these, okay? Uh, knowing these would be very helpful. Differences between hyperkalemia and hypokalemia. Uh, and you guys have seen this on a daily basis. And if you work in a hospital, you've seen it quite a bit. Um, see, you can see the cow brain, acute low, acute high, uh, cow brain at KB high, okay? Case B high. So... Are these a good mnemonic to know? Okay, we will talk about this Chem 7 shortly. Okay. Calcium is another one uh, you should look up. Um, these are the lab, normal lab values. Uh, so I put down some of the functions, uh, organ that actually involved as well, um, right here for you guys to look. There's differences between hypocalcemia and hypercalcemia that's usually based on um, based on your um, hormone that usually could cause this for the most part. 
has to do with parathyroid, sometimes could be kidney, could actually cause this as well. Okay. Uh, we'll talk more about these all as well when we uh, get in touch with parathyroid, uh, which is in the endocrine. Paget disease, Paget disease um, usually is genetics. Um, usually this is a bone disease where you actually have the remodeling of the bone. Okay, You could have a Paget of the skin, Paget of the breast, Paget of the bone. So uh, there's different, different Pagets everywhere. But this one, for the main part, uh, usually it has to do with bone, uh, increased bone reabsorption and access it. Excessive remodeling that means your bone is keep breaking down and rebuild, breaking down and rebuild all the time. Okay, so you have this deformity of your bones everywhere. Okay, uh, you could have hearing loss. Uh, this because of the three bones inside your ear could go through that remodeling as well, so causing you have problem with hearing loss. Multiple myeloma, this is, um, we will touch more on this later on as well. Uh, some of these uh, has to do with your hypercalcemia um, because it breaks down your bone and dump some of, and dump your calcium inside, inside, to, your, inside to your blood vessels. Uh, but multiple myeloma is actually a cancer. It's a plasma cell cancer. Usually affects people who are male and 60 and above. Um, you have hypercalcemia, and the huge thing to remember is this, that could cause renal failure. And because of the calcium, too much calcium could cause kidney stone, causing stone, uh, causing your kidney to develop stone. That stone could actually block and cause renal failures inside your kidneys. Magnesium, we uh, usually don't talk much about magnesium, but... One thing to remember that most people here, uh, we actually don't get enough magnesium. Um, so, and the first thing that's something you might want to remember, if you have headaches, uh, the first thing you want to do before you grab Tylenol, before you grab Motrin, is actually take take on some magnesium pills. Because a lot of time you actually, without magnesium, you have these uh, muscle spasm, muscle uh, spasm all the time. Uh, so you want to actually take some magnesium to help with your um, kind of let go of your muscles and so your muscle become a little bit loose. Okay, will help with your headaches. So you guys could take a look at these. This mainly has to do with um, muscle and also nervous system as well. Uh, Hypermagnesemia, uh, that means too much uh, magnesium that could actually lead to renal failure because this could also form a uh, another type of stone uh, renal calculi. Uh, we'll talk about that in in the renal section. But uh, magnesium could actually form an, another stone, causing your kidney to shut down. Okay. Last one uh, before we go into bicarb is phosphorus. Uh, you might want to find out what phosphorus is. Um, not too much um, problem with phosphorus because a lot of time you could get rid of phosphorus if you have too much of it uh, pretty easily. Okay, um, if you have problem if you have your phosphorus is off, usually it's because of mainly because of your parathyroid could be because of antacid uh, or malabsorption. Okay, that could cause this. Hyper is related to hypocalcemia. 
Last one is bicarb. We're going to talk more, much more about bicarb shortly. Okay, shortly. So question one, this is something uh, when you fill out the form, we have about seven questions today that you need to, to write down. So question one is this, uh, if you have these levels, what's wrong with this? What is your interpretation? So which one is high, which one is low? What kind of pathophysiology, what kind of, uh, what kind of, what what's going on? What could cause this? Uh, I, instead of say pathophys, I should say it's actually cause. What actually caused these condition? Whichever one is high, whichever one is low, what's causing it? Clinical ma manifestation. What are the symptoms that you see that you will see in this patient? Okay, if they have a certain level is high, certain level is low. What kind of symptom would you see? And then treatment. What kind of treatment would you do with those patients? Okay, so I want you to write these down. Um, write these down. You you will have to fill out the form. Uh, in um, it has a little short answer uh, paragraph for you to fill it out. You could fill that out uh, through that link that I'm giving you. Okay. Question two, again, question two, you might want to take a picture of these. Uh, these are the levels. So which one is low, which one is high? Okay, interpretation, what that is, which high? Which one is high, which one is low? Uh, B is the cause, what causing it? Okay, what's the cause? And C, uh, what are the symptoms? What are the symptoms that this patient would have? And D, what kind of treatment would you do? Okay. of the topic three. Uh, part two has to do with acid-base um, balance. A lot of time when we talk about acid bases, it's another topic that student tends to, you know, be fearful. Uh, they don't want to have difficult time understanding uh, uh, the concept of acid-base. So hopefully, uh, I'll try to make it simple for you toward the end, but I just want you to, to give you the gist, the concept, the huge concept of it first before uh, giving you the, the DL uh, down low of what acid-base is, okay? So without further ado, let's get to it. Let's talk about acid-base, okay? So before we actually uh, go on further, just trying to kind of clarify a couple of terms for you. So one is the term acidosis. Uh, the other term is uh, acidemia, okay? Acidosis versus acidemia. So what do you think uh, these terms actually means? Okay, so think about that for a second. Uh, we oftentimes use it kind of interchangeably all the time. So you want to kind of really truly think about what this uh, this term actually means. Acidosis versus acidine. Okay, so what this is, um, what this term is, um, so when we talk about acidosis, acidosis, okay, uh, acidosis is basically a process, okay, a process. Uh, that's what's going on in your body, uh, a process. Where, where things actually, uh, your pH starting to get low, um, that's just a process that's going on in your body. You could actually have uh, acidemia, which is a condition 
where you actually have um, your blood become acidic, okay? But you may not necessarily, let's say your blood is out of range, your pH is actually getting lower, but you may not necessarily end up with acidosis. You may end up with, you know, alkalosis as well. Uh, there's few, you know, exception of that. But just think in general where acidosis is a process where things uh, kind of step up how things happened from one thing leading to the other. And most likely if you have acidemia, eventually it could lead to acidosis. Um, you could have acidemia. Uh, let's say you this is a normal thing that you, we do all the time. Uh, when we drink, uh, we drink, uh, you know, soda pop. Uh, or you drink your coffee, okay? Uh, soda is a pH of four, which is acidic. Uh, coffee also a pH of four or five, depending on which brand of coffee you drink. So when you drink those, you actually make your blood to become uh, slightly acidic. So your blood actually becomes acidemia, but it does not lead to acidosis. That's just like, see, acid, acidemia is a condition where you, you just drink something that's causing your blood to become a little bit acid, um, acidic. But your body will try to do things to cover, uh, to buffer that, you know, homeostasis, buffering that, preventing you from going to acidosis, full-blown acidosis. Okay, so keep that in mind. So we oftentimes use these terms kind of interchangeably, but technically speaking, acidemia is a condition, and acidosis is a process of all of these conditions build up to acidosis. Okay, so same thing with alkalemia versus alkalosis, uh, same thing, same ideas. Okay, for this lecture, um, you will need. We're gonna talk about these uh, equation. Okay, we're gonna cover these equation, and this this equation is quite all important to uh, definitely important to to acid base. The first one, since we talk about it so much, which is pH. pH P. When you see that little p, is the concentration of hydrogen proton. Okay, so p is the concentration. H is the hydrogen proton. So concentration of that hydrogen, okay? So that's what pH means, that's what it stands for. So it's equal to negative log of 10 of the hydrogen concentration, proton concentration. So you have these concentration there. So, okay, a negative log of 10. So the number here, so to put this in perspective, okay? You have a log of 10, so 10 to what power, so 10 to the pH power equals to the number of proton you have in your body. And this is what all of this equation actually means, that uh, the pH that you see here, the number that we often use, 7, 4, that's the power of 10, okay? If you have pH of 4, that means 10 to the 4, 10 to the 4. That means that's how much concentration you have of that hydrogen in your blood. So going from pH of 2 to pH of 4, it's not just 2, but it's a 100 times the level 
Okay, so keep that in mind. Okay, keep that in mind. So 100 times the level of that hydrogen concentration. So going from 2 to 4 is actually 100 times. Uh, going from 2 to 5 is 1,000 times. Going from 2 to 6 is uh, 10,000 times. So you could see it's multiply of 10. Okay, so keep that in mind. That's the pH base of 10. The Pusch equation we're going to talk about are these two, definitely. These are the two big equations. You don't really need to memorize any equation in this class, okay? You don't. But I'm just going to bring this up so you know what we're talking about, the background of these. And let's get into these, okay? So this is the main equation for acid-base, okay? Acid-base equation is this. Uh, and you have, let's explain this really quick. So you have CO2, which is uh, the CO2 in your body, uh, and the level of, of the water in your body. These two combine and you get what we call a carbonic acid. Carbonic acid. You need a little enzyme, carbonic anhydrase. You have tons of that in your body. These kind of go back and forth, back and forth like this all the time. Okay, so you're going with carbon dioxide and water, you create a carbonic acid. Carbonic acid is not stable, so they like to just think of it like a, um, a quick bus stop. They don't like to stay in this form, so they either go back this way or they're going back this way. So this guy doesn't, doesn't like to stay here at this level by themselves, okay? Um, so he likes to lose uh, a hydrogen or break it up to CO2 and water. So this one, you have the bicarb, bicarbonate, no bicarb, and the hydrogen proton, okay? So when we talk about pH level, all the pH level has to do with this little guy here. So the more hydrogen proton you have in your body, the lower the pH you will get, okay? So the, the higher concentration of a hydrogen proton, the lower the pH you will be, okay? That's why it's a negative log, negative log, that's mean it's going down. So the more hydrogen you have, the pH is going down, okay? So keep that in mind. Um, so, the, this side, when we talk about the most important part of this side is the CO2, not the water, it's the CO2. Where do we have, where do we get CO2? We actually get CO2 from all of your cells. If you actually look at the cellular respiration inside the mitochondria, this is where we produce energy, where we produce converting the ATP to NADH, NADH to, um, to, um, to these cellular respiration and you're getting uh, energy out of NADH. Uh, and one of the things that you get bypassed, so one of the products that you actually make is CO2. Uh, you, so we make CO2 in our body. So we release that CO2 from your cell. Every cell in your body makes CO2, every single cell. So from coming from your cellular respiration. And the big organ to remember is the lungs. The lung has to do with CO2. And we're going to talk more about that later on as well, you know, when we talk about uh, respiratory. But CO2, this is where you release from CO2 from, to your, uh, from your lungs to outside. Okay. So when you see the CO2 here, think of it's a respiratory condition. So this side 
control that side. So the, let's say if you have higher level of CO2, uh, if you have more CO2 in your body, okay, if your CO2 level goes up, let's say your CO2 level goes up, okay, it will drive equation this way, okay, it will drive equation this way, causing this guy to go up, okay, this guy to go up. So if you increase the level of CO2, therefore you're going to increase level of proton, therefore you become more acidic, okay, so respiratory, so the how do we increase level of CO2? Well, you could, if you're holding your breath, let's say you keep the CO2 inside, any type of restrictive uh, or obstructive lung disease that actually keep your CO2 inside, causing your CO2 level go, to go up, uh, will drive the equation this way. Okay, so that's respiratory. We'll talk more about that. Um, so if it's increased, it's become acidotic. Uh, you have acidosis. And if it's decreased, that means you expel your CO2 a lot. You're just breathing out too much CO2. You're hyperventilating. Your hyperventilating is going the opposite way. Okay, It's going to opposite way where your CO2 level goes down. Okay, It will drive equation this way. When it drive equation this way or Hydrogen will combine with this to make carbonic acid and to make more CO2. So it's going to drive everything this way, causing your hydrogen levels to go down. So you become alkalotic. Okay, alkalotic. Uh, usually when, when we talk about this, this system is quick. It's very quick. It's acute. Uh, you, it takes about within minutes to actually see this happening. So you're going to hit this within like minutes. It's very, very acute. Whereas here on this side, this is inside your lungs. So keep that in mind, it's inside your lungs. So this side, we're going to talk about bicarb. The bicarb, the key of bicarb is actually to buffer the acid. Okay, to buffer the acid. And this happened inside your kidneys. So inside your kidneys. So anytime we talk about bicarb, it's inside your kidney. Um, it's in your uh, nephron. And um, it's automatically... When we talk about acid base, when you see bicarb, think of metabolic condition, metabolic condition. So CO2 has to do with respiratory with the lungs, Metab uh, bicarb has to do with metabolic. So if you have bicarb is up, if you have an increase of bicarb, okay, think about this for a second. If you have increase of bicarb, if your bicarb goes up, Okay, that's mean you have more of this guy to bind with hydrogen. So more hydrogen will bind with bicarb and the equation will drive this way. Okay, will drive this way. Because you have high level of bicarb, hydrogen will go down because you start binding with the bicarb and go to carbonic acid. Okay, so increase the bicarb, then therefore you become alkalosis because you have... Uh, low level of protons, so your pH goes up. Whereas, whereas uh, if you have decreased level of bicarb, if your bicarb goes down, okay, uh, bicarbs go down, so you have less of these guys to bind with hydrogen, so you have more hydrogen floating around 
by itself, by the lonesome. So therefore, you can actually have invite uh, equations going this way, uh, causing you to have more and build up of hydrogen proton over and over. Therefore, you become uh, acidosis. Okay, acidotic. This system usually it takes days. It's, uh, it's a delay system. It's uh, wait. You have to wait for it. It's, it's not something quick. It's not something like your lungs that can actually happen very quickly. Whereas this thing takes a while. Okay, this equation you have the pH uh, of six point one equal to six point one plus the log of ten uh, over the bicarb uh, over 0 0.03 times uh, pCO2, concentration of CO2. Uh, all of this, what does it mean? You don't need to memorize this, but what you need to know is there actually a correlation between these three things, okay? Between these three things, okay? Um, between these three things. And I'm going to show you that correlation in just a second. So pH, bicarb, and pCO2. They all goes together. These three actually goes together. Okay, uh, they affect one another. If one goes up, the other one might go up, go down. So they affect one another. So all of these equation, what it truly mean is uh, these two uh, can affect the pH, or pH can affect these two. So either way, we talk about this already. Okay, we talk about this equation already right here. So CO two plus water, carbonic acid, you get proton with bicarb, that's in the kidney, that's in the lungs, okay? The key to remember, uh, huge thing to remember, usually uh, the normal values for pH is from 7.35 to 7.45. Just put that in your head, okay? Just put that in your head. Anything below, not the same level, so anything 3.5 is okay, 0.35 is okay. But if it's below 0.35, let's say 7.30, 7.34, 7.31, that would be acidotic. Um, whereas if you above 7.45, 7.46, 7 7.5, those would be our closest. Okay. These are values that I would hope that you actually put in your head. Okay. Would hope that you put this in your head. So pH again 7.35 to 4.5. PCO2 is 35 to 45. Okay, easy to remember. You could actually see here 35, 45. Bring it down. Easy to remember. Bicarb. The old number is 22 to 26. That's the old number. The new number uh, is 24 to 28. Most places now use 24 to 28. Uh, but you may still hear some old folks, uh, some people still mention 22, 20, 26. Some lab, depending on which lab you order, they still use 22 to 26. Some lab use 24 to 28. So look at the values, okay? Look at these values um, in, from your lab. ABG, this is how usually we list ABG. We put pH, PCO2, PO2, Bicarb and the normal value of all of that would look like this 7.4, which is smack in the middle between 7.35, 7.45, right in the middle. 40, which is smack in the middle of 35 and 45. 90, that's your uh, 
pulse ox should be above 90. Uh, 24 is actually smack between 22 to 26, but you could say 26 as well, which is in the middle. Uh, last equation that you need to know, and this is a huge one you should need to know, is called anion gap. Anion gap, which is uh, sodium minus chloride plus bicarb. Okay, you need to work inside the parentheses first, so you need chloride plus bicarb, and then subtract that to the sodium. Okay, we will talk about all of these in just a second. What does all mean? Okay, and what you need to know. Uh, this is something you should know. Uh, like I mentioned before, you should know Chem Seven. Uh, this is the the fishbone uh, the fishbone uh, drawing. So when you have this chem seven, you have seven values, seven chemistry value, uh, clinic, uh, doctors and NP, you need to know how to write these. So uh, so you would do these uh, fish bone here. Uh, you have the first value is sodium. Okay, sodium. Sodium high is dry. Sodium low, uh, low, uh oh, seizure coma. Okay, so this is the key one to remember when it's low. Um, so high is not good either, um, but usually the one we concern is low. The lowest one, amazingly, uh, I saw, which I could not believe in my eyes. Uh, the patient actually had like just, her sodium was in 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 her nineties, uh, upper nineties. I don't know how she survived. She actually was in ICU uh, for days, for a week, uh, with the low really low level of sodium. Um, and she was waiting for her mom, I guess. Uh, but when her mom came, um, that's when she ready to go. So and she passed away a few days afterward. But I could not believe how low it was. Uh, her, her sodium was her in her nineties, um, which I was amazed. Uh, she even uh, her heart even pumping, even surviving. Okay. Uh, the second one is potassium. Potassium is here. Uh, case behind. Dump it. Acute heart uh, heart ECG potassium uh, load you need to replace. Uh, you could go into coma. Too high is you also gonna shut down your heart. Um, basically, it's gonna stop your heart from uh, from pumping. You look at this. These two are the uh, the the positive the proton the the positive ion the cation. I'm sorry, the cation. So you have these positive charges, so sodium with plus two, potassium with plus one. So these are the positive charges. These are the negative charges, negative charges. So chloride, uh, chloride, uh, we, will, we talked about chloride earlier. Now you have high or low chloride. When they say CO2 here, they, they don't mean the PCO2. The PCO2 is... Uh, it's different, completely different value. The CO2 here referring to the bicarb. This is the same value as bicarb. Again, you could see this one used 22 to 28. Uh, instead of 24 to 28, now it's 22 to 28. So cover cover it all, cover the old one and the new ones. So so this is bicarb, uh, not CO2, but we, all, we call it uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, but it's truly is a bicarb number. You have bun here, B-U-N, um, we'll talk about that later on. Creatinine here, and then glucose level here. So today we're going to focus on these four. We're going to talk more about these four. We won't talk about these. Okay. 
So with acid-based condition, you have four conditions, four main conditions that you could have. You could have metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis, respiratory acidosis, and respiratory alkalosis. Those are the four main conditions. Okay. So with metabolic acidosis, okay, metabolic acidosis, what happens is your bicarb level is decreased. Your bicarb level goes down. Okay, your bicarb level goes down because you're getting, um, you actually start uh, building up those protons when you are, uh, you, whatever condition that you have in your body, your body is causing your body to actually lower down the bicarb. So if you have more proton, you actually have more hydrogen proton around. So therefore your pH goes down, your pH goes down, and then your PCO2 also goes down. Okay, notice something. Okay, notice that if you have, if you have PCO2 goes down and your pH goes down together, okay, it goes down together, that means you have metabolic condition. If it goes down together, you have metabolic condition. If PCO2 goes down, your pH goes down as well, that means you have metabolic condition. Okay, so the equation is shifting. Um, since uh, bicarb goes down, equation shifting to the right. Uh, so therefore, it, you actually could cause your CO2 level to go down, uh, pushing everything to the right, uh, causing the hydrogen proton to be even higher, and then causing pH to go down. Okay, whereas metabolic alkalosis, metabolic alkalosis, you could see your pH goes up, your PCO2 goes up, and then your bicarb also goes up. Okay, when you seeing the PCO2 goes up, is a metabolic alkalosis. Okay, again, when it's go up together, it's a metabolic condition. When these two goes up together, PCO2 and pH, when it goes up or goes down together, it's metabolic. If it goes in the opposite way, if one goes up, one goes down, that means it's respiratory. Okay, plain and simple. So if it goes up and goes down together, it's metabolic. If it's go opposite way, it's respiratory. So respiratory acidosis, you have a couple of conditions to note to note. Okay. Respiratory acidosis, you have your PCO2 goes up. Okay, your PCO2 goes up. Again, this is, has to do with your lungs. In order for you to have acidosis, you need to have a collection of CO2 collection of CO2 inside your lungs. So your CO2 level is on a rise, it's keep going up, okay? This happened very quickly. It could be a lot of things. You could have your lungs collapse, you could have, um, you know, it could be hyperventilating, you could have all kinds of stuff, obstructive condition. Uh, you cannot get rid of, let's say, get rid of your CO2, you keep building up CO2 inside. Um, not hyperventilating, actually, we raised that. Um, just uh, you you have like asthma condition you cannot breathe out uh, so your CO2 start level to start to build up inside your lungs so that's PCO2 goes up with PCO2 you have two condition whether you have acute or chronic acute or chronic acute that means it happened very quickly chronic takes a while take days to happen okay with acute your body hasn't had time to respond uh, so your bicarb 
increase, but it's slightly increased, just slightly, just very little, slightly increased because your body hasn't truly respond to the crisis that's going on. Your body hasn't compensate to that crisis. Uh, but therefore, you have this slight increase of bicarb, but not a lot. Whereas your pH, your pH level here is decreased quite a bit. Your pH level goes down. Okay, and you can see here pH is opposite, therefore it's a respiratory condition. And if you notice your pH is going down, therefore it's acidosis. Okay, pH goes down, pH is opposite to PCO2, therefore it's respiratory acidosis. Okay, whereas chronic, chronic you have this condition where you have your pH also goes down because it's acidosis, your pH goes down also opposite to P PCO2 because PCO2 goes up, so therefore it's a respiratory condition. However, your bicarb is, your body has been compensating, your kidney has been compensating, so your bicarb goes up, okay? So you're chronic, okay? This is how we know whether you're chronic or not by just looking at this bicarb levels. And the way we look at it is this as well, okay? So your ratio, ratio between bicarb and PCO2 to see how much bicarb and how much PCO2 is increased. Okay. So with a Q, with a Q, you're gonna you're not gonna see a lot of the increase of bicarb. Therefore, the uh, the ratio is actually bigger. So one to ten, one to ten. So if this go up one, if bicarb goes up one, your PCO2 will go up by ten by 10, okay? So if you just go up one, PCO2 will go up by 10. On chronic side, your body compensate, therefore your bicarb level is higher, okay? You keep your bike, your body has a chance to compensate by increasing level of bicarb, therefore the differences are not that high. So one to three. So if this go up by one, your PCO2 only go up by three. Okay, so keep that in mind. Respiratory alkalosis is the opposite. Okay, the opposite. So your your pH is up because it's high alkalosis. That means this base it goes up. Again, you have two conditions, acute and chronic, and it's the same thing, but opposite. Uh, so again, anything pH and PCO2 is opposite. Therefore, it is respiratory condition opposite respiratory. Uh, therefore, bicarb, when you look at the bicarb, very little, uh, going down very little, uh, but this one is um, actually, oops, I mean, yes, I forgot to change these. Uh, these are supposed to say decrease, not uh, not increase, but need to say decrease, so just scratch that out. So decrease, so bicarb decreases little, and bicarb decreases a lot, okay, decrease a lot. So so the ratio is a little different ratio. Um, easy to remember because uh, the other one is one to 10. So this one is half for alkalosis, it's always half. So one to five instead of one to 10. Uh, the other one is one to three, and this is one, one to two, okay. so. If if um, bicarb going up one, the PCO2 goes actually go down one. Uh, PCO2 will go down five. Whereas this one, if P bicarb goes down one, uh, your PCO2 will only go down two. 
Okay. So the thing about this, a uh, couple of takeaway. One, when you look at these questions, uh, when you look at your real, real patient, the first thing you want to do is calculate. Uh, when you have these ABG questions, uh, you first thing you want to do is you want to calculate your anion gap. Anion gap. Anion gap will tell you one thing and one thing only uh, that you actually have a metabolic acidosis. Okay, majority of the time, there are other conditions that actually could cause anion gap, but majority of the time is actually referring to metabolic uh, acidosis. Okay, so you want to calculate that first to see whether you have metabolic acidosis on hand. After you calculate that, you look at your pH, whether it's alkaline, whether you have acidosis or alkalosis, and then you look at PCO2. If your pH is down and your PCO2 is down, therefore is metabolic condition. If it's go up and up, that means also alkalo uh, metabolic condition. But if your pH is down, but your PCO2 is go up, that means it's respiratory type. Okay, so keep that in mind. So if uh, if these are opposite, it's respiratory. If it's the same, go up and down together, that means it's uh, metabolic. Then after that, you want to determine whether it's, which type is, is it, whether it's acute or chronic. Determine whether it's acute or chronic. Okay, we will do something similar to that uh, in the next few slides, okay, toward the end. So pH balance, pH balance. Um, you have all of these. Uh, you have carbonic acid. We talked about that. That's a weak acid. Uh, tends to go to either way, uh, breaking down to CO2 or water, or you uh, have bicarb or uh, proton. Okay, metabolic uh, metabolic acidosis. That means you actually have these, like lactic acid, pyruvate. You have ketone buildup in your body, so all of these could cause metabolic acidosis. Okay, um, ratio, which is two, twenty to one base versus acid. Uh, usually, that's how much base you have. You have more base in your body than your acid. Um, pH, if it's base or acid, that means if you have low pH, that means acid. You have high pH, is uh, it's a base. Some of these kind of pretty straightforward. Um, bicarb, this usually has to do with buffering. Buffering, you could have the respiratory and metabolic uh, to do those. Uh, pH balance, we base, we use uh, respiratory and renal buffling. We talk about that. Distal tubules, that's where we um, buffer in, in, in terms of bicarb. Uh, you have hydrogen proton, we secrete that, uh, we secrete uh, bicarb into your urine. Um, also, hydrogen proton as well to uh, for bicarb. So you have main majority, you have these four groups. Uh, mainly you have these four groups that you that we often deal with. Okay, these four groups that we often deal with. Um, there are actually two additional groups as well. So we've been talking about these two, these four main groups. You have metabolic acidosis, respiratory acidosis, metabolic alkalosis, and respiratory alkalosis. These are the four main groups. However, we're going to talk about these as well. We touched on these a little bit before. We touched on these a little bit before. Um, 
the respiratory condition and also uh, metabolic condition can also have something called compensation. Compensation is when your body is actually compensating when your body is trying to make up, uh, trying to counterbalance. So let's say your body is have acid become acidotic. Your body trying to compensate by using your lungs to compensate the the acid that you have in your body. Okay, uh, respiratory acidosis. You use your kidney to compensate that. Okay. Uh, Metabolic alkalosis, you use your lungs to compensate the, um, the alkalosis condition, the basic condition. Uh, respiratory alkalosis is you use your kidney to compensate that. So it's, it's the way your body compensates that or not. Okay. Uh, to, and I'm going to show you how you guys be able to tell these, uh, how to work out these uh, problem uh, uh, questions. Okay. First, um, respiratory acidosis and metabolic acidosis. These are some of the causes that could actually lead to metabolic and, as, and respiratory acidosis. You could see respiratory, usually again from the lungs, uh, asthma, anything that could keep the CO2 inside, increase the CO2 level. Uh, COPD, you cannot really um, breathe. Uh, you start having the CO2 build up in, inside your lungs. Pneumonia. Uh, asthma, okay, so any of these, you could have compensation by, uh, you have metabolic compensation, uh, you increase more alkalosis uh, into your body to compensate the acid in your body. Metabolic acidosis, you could have like different shocks could cause this, we'll talk about shocks uh, next week. Technically, we're supposed to talk about this week, but we'll talk about that next week. A different type of shock, cardiogenic, hypovolemic, neurogenic, anaphylactic, septic shock. All of these shocks could cause metabolic acidosis. The main one that you often see is DKA. Uh, that definitely caused metabolic acidosis. Uh, seizure, renal failure, aspirin overdose. We're going to talk about some of these. Ethylene glycol as well. Uh, methanol uh, drinking, you could actually definitely cause uh, some of these there. Alkalosis, you have respiratory condition where you have a high altitude that could cause it, or salicy salicylate toxicity uh, definitely can lead to that as well. Uh, metabolic alkalosis, different things from vomiting, uh, hypokalemia, and diuretics, antacid, all of these could lead to uh, loss of that proton, okay? Loss of that proton. So you, if, you, if you're throwing up, if you're throwing up, you're actually throwing up all the acid in your body. You're throwing up all the acid, causing your body to become alkalosis. But if you would have diarrhea, usually is this, uh, is metabolic acidosis, where you pooping out all the, uh, all the base. You're pooping out all the base. That's mean you're pooping out all, all the bicarb. The that's mean your body could become more acidotic. But sometimes, if you poop out a lot of uh, you poop out a lot of proton, uh, you could actually end up with this as well. This chart, I don't recommend memorizing it whatsoever. Uh, it's useless. Uh, truly useless. Uh, it's confusing. Um, truly confusing. Uh, you, you don't want to remember memorize these things. Okay. 
So let's talk about anion gap first. And anion gap before I get to all the shortcuts with you. Okay. Anion gaps, uh, you have the conventional, uh, the one that we use now is the equation I show you at the beginning is sodium minus chloride plus bicarb. And that has to equal to 12. Okay, just remember it's equal to 12. Okay, 10 to 12, but that's the range. 10 to 12 should be in there. Uh, what we used before, a lot of people used before, is the sodium plus potassium minus chloride plus bicarb. That's the O equation. O equation. Um, and then the, the base value is 12 to 16. 12 to 16. Okay? So let me explain what anion gap is. So normally in your body, you have cation and you have anion. Cation is the positive charge positive charge, whereas anion is the negative charge. So cat is cat. Think of cat as positive. So cat is positive and is always negative. And just always moody and negative. So and negative, cat is positive. So in your body you have tons of positive charges like calcium, magnesium, potassium and sodium. The main one, the huge one is sodium. As you, as you all know, you have this sodium in there. You have tiny little bit of potassium and the rest of it is all of these combined. Okay. So you also have anion, which is a negative charge. The main one is the chlorine, chloride and uh, bicarb chloride and bicarb, those are the main one. You have other one like sulfate and phosphate as well. Uh, those are the smaller one. We don't really want to count. So the main one we want to count is these two, bicarb and chlorine. Okay. So normally your body will actually maintain this anion gap. So it's a gap between the negative charge and the positive charge. Before we used to measure from here, from this, you add these two together, all the way differences between these two. But since potassium um, is so low, it's only four, so we kind of skipped that. We just took out the potassium. You could see we took out the potassium with the new equation. And we adjust our, we adjust our normal value. You subtract four from normal values. From here to here, you go down from 16 to 12. So you subtract four. So instead of adding the four in, because four is always constant, uh, potassium is kind of somewhat constant, uh, even with this. So we just, don't, we just don't want to take time to calculate out that, that out at all, just take that away. So what you want to calculate is using chlorine plus, chloride plus bicarb, and then subtract that from, sodium. So basically what we calculating is this little gap here, this gap. So a lot of time we want to maintain this gap, okay, to see whether this gap stay stable or not. So you could have in this condition, this is in metabolic acidosis, in metabolic acidosis. What happened in metabolic acidosis is your body, okay, your body, um, you could have two things. You could have your normal gap for your metabolic acidosis, or you could have elevated gap in metabolic acidosis. 
with metabolic acidosis is your bicarb goes down. Your bicarb actually becomes smaller. Okay, your bicarb becomes smaller. So when that bicarb becomes smaller, normally speaking, your body, you could say here, chloride normally is 104. Your body compensates by increased level of chloride in your body. Increase that level of um, chloride in your body to maintain the gap, to maintain this anion gap. Okay, so you could have a normal anion gap and then you have metabolic acidosis. Okay, you could have a normal anion gap and you could still have metabolic acidosis. Could be a lot of things, could be like from diarrhea, could be from all kinds of other stuff that actually caused it. Uh, you could have renal loss. Um, your certain medication could cause you to dump out too much uh, bicarb. Um, so something could actually decrease in your, uh, actually increase your, uh, uh, actually decrease your proton secretion. Um, so you have more proton in your body, causing you to become acidotic. But in this case, in this case, <clears throat> your bicarb goes down, your bicarbs go down, but your chlorine did not adjust, do not adjust to that. Your chlorine stack still stay the same. Therefore, you increase this gap. You increase this anion gap. When you increase the gap, that means you have more of this conjugated charge floating around, floating around in your body, causing havoc in your body. Okay, that means you have these unpaired charges, unpaired negative charges. You could see here this. Uh, these anion is actually very um, about still about the same here, that anion. But with this one, you have the anion become a lot more. These these guys become a lot more. You have these charges, negative charges floating around, okay, causing all kinds of problems. Okay, the the key term to remember is mud piles, mud piles. Okay, for for positive anion gap. So when you see a positive anion gap, it's always, always that you're going to have um, metabolic acidosis condition. Always metabolic acidosis condition. However, however, if you have metabolic acidosis, doesn't mean you actually will have a positive gap. Okay, doesn't mean you have a positive gap. So when you, the first thing I usually you know, want you to calculate is the anion gap. If you calculate the anion gap, to see whether you have a positive gap or not. If you have positive gap, you know your patient is metabolic acidosis. And the reason being, the cause of this is mud piles. You could have methanol, uh, uh, uremia, uh, you have urine in your, uh, your, in your blood, DKA could cause this. Propylene glycol could cause this. Isoniazid, this is the um, medication for uh, antibiotics, um, for TBs. Lactic acidosis could cause this. Ethylene glycol, uh, salicylate uh, level could actually all cause this, okay? Cause positive anion gap. And this is another chart that pretty much similar to that. Um, you have the sodium level. The, this is the positive, uh, the cation. This is the anion. You could see the gap is small here, 
whereas this one you have a bigger gap. Uh, this is normal. This is metabolic acidosis with positive gap. This is metabolic acidosis with a normal gap. Okay. Again, mud piles, methanol, uremia, DKA, uh, metformin uh, could actually cause this as well. Uh, iron or isoniazid, uh, lactic acid, ethylene glycol or alcohol as well. Uh, salicate could actually cause positive anion gap. Okay, so mud piles. You might want to know mud piles. Rhabdo could cause it as well. So, okay, let's take a little time for you uh, to figure this out. You might want to pause this video. Okay, so looking at this, um, using the equation I told you early on, okay, looking at this, tell me what a, uh, what's the gap is, the number you need to calculate it out calculate out the gap and also tell me what it is okay what condition the patient has okay so you could pause this video if you want so the first one uh, the gap 138 uh, minus chlorine and bicarb combined so that would be 128 so 22 plus 106 that's 128 138 minus 128 is 10. Hopefully you get 10. Therefore, this is still within the gap. The gap is not positive. Okay. What condition? The second one, the second thing we do after we calculate the gap is we look at the pH. pH is high, right? Therefore, it's alkalosis. And the PCO2, PCO2 is here. Is it going up with the pH? No, it's actually going down. Remember, PCO2 has to be 35 to 45. This is low, so it's opposite. Therefore, this is the, when it's opposite, is respiratory condition. This is respiratory alkalosis. So respiratory alkalosis, okay? Patient two, let's calculate the gap. You could pause the video if you want. Okay, so the gap, you could see sodium, which is 40. So this 20 plus 102 is 122. So, so 40 minus 122 is 12, right? 40 minus 122 is 18. Sorry, 18, not 12. Uh, can't do math. So 18, sorry. So 18 that's definitely positive. So this one, you know, is positive. Therefore, without even looking at the rest of these, you know, this is the metabolic acidosis, metabolic acidosis. Okay, so this is metabolic acidosis by default. Okay, next one, next one. Okay, you could pause the video. Okay, so calculate this. So 28 plus 101 is 129, right? 129. 140 minus 129 is equal to 11, right? 11. It's supposed to say 11. Uh, they, they miscalculated it. I cannot change it. Uh, it's 11, 12. What condition is this? So look at pH. pH is low. Therefore, this is acidic, right? pH is low. 
pH is going down, but the PCO2 is going up. It's the opposite. So this is respiratory because it's opposite in respiratory, and this is going down. That means it's respiratory acidosis. Respiratory acidosis. And last one, you could do this. Okay, so pause the video. So this one, you have 91 plus 34. So 4 plus 1 is 5. So it's 125. 125, 136 minus 125 is also 11 okay 136 minus 125 is also 11 so looking at this okay 7.7 .7, that's going up so there's alkalosis alkalosis pco2 is also going up remember it's 45 35 to 45 that's going up so up and up ah up and up is metabolic condition because it's the same metabolic condition so therefore this is metabolic alkalosis metabolic alkalosis very good now i'm going to teach you a different ways of how to look at the uh i gave you one shortcut already those three three things to do those are shortcut usually works pretty well for the most part but in some of your questions that you're going to be asked uh, this is a better way of actually looking at acidosis and alkalosis this is called the uh, acido acidosis and alkalosis tic-tac-toe uh, so a, a very easy way to think about acidosis and alkalosis so this thing kind of divide into two sections the section on the top is something you should remember in your head okay by default it's the section on the bottom here. This is the one that we're gonna play with. Okay, the the top I want to add it in just to just for reference for you, so you could as we go through this, you will see this as a reference. Okay, so pH uh, you have the range is three point five to four point five, like I mentioned before. Okay. PCO2, we're going to do something a little different. You're going to bring this 35 back to this side here and then bring 45 to this side here. Okay. I'll explain why we actually, that's wrong. So think of it, uh, this should be 45 and this should be 35. I need to switch these. Okay, so think of this 45 and this is 35. Okay, so um, make sure you uh, have that noted uh, on the noted next page. Um, bicarb is between 22 to 26 or 24 to 28, so either one. Okay, um, so what we want to do, okay, what we want to do, let's cancel that first. So this is 45. The reason uh, I put 45 on this side, okay and 35 on this side oh my handwriting here we go 35 on this side because it, this is acid acidosis so if you if any number above 45 any number um, below 35 here oh actually i'm sorry any number that's uh, above here going up uh, the number that below here is uh is going to be acidosis. The number that below acid um, bicarb is 24. If you're below 24, it's going to be acidotic, uh, going to be on the acidosis side. The number that's above this side, 
or below this 35 um, or above 28, it's going to be on alkalosis side. Okay, so this is what we usually do is we, uh, this is the given number, this is the number I will give you or number that they give you on in the questions. And then you have to give a com um, interpre interpretation of what it is. That's what, what most of the tests that you have with acidotic, acid-based question, usually that's what they base on. They give you a number, a uh, case study, and then they give you these number and you have to figure out whether, uh, what it is, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, what condition it is. For example, let's do some of these questions. So, uh, let's say you have uh, 7.31, okay? Uh, PCO2 is 49, so 49, and then you have bicarb is 24, bicarb is 24, okay? So first thing, what we're gonna do with the tic-tac-toe is you look at the pH, pH 7.31, is below this number. Therefore, below this number here, below this number, so you wanna bring it down to this side. So what you wanna do is you're just gonna write pH because since it's lower, then 7.35 is going to be on this side of the chart. If it's uh, in the normal range, you're going to write in the normal range. If it's above above this number, you're going to write on the alkalosis side. Okay. So PCO2 is 49. 49 is uh, above this number. Therefore, we put it down here, PCO2. Okay. And bicarb is 24. Therefore, that's normal. So Gonna write in, in the middle the normal range right here. Okay, that's the normal range. Okay, so first you're gonna look at pH and you're gonna say, okay, pH is on the on the acidosis acidosis side, so therefore this is as acidosis. Okay, acidosis by default. Whatever under the pH, okay whatever and under that pH. So CO2 is under the pH, therefore this is respiratory acidosis. As respiratory acidosis. So pH is on the acid side, PCO2 is on the acid side, therefore is respiratory acidosis. Okay, so if bicarb, for instance, okay, if you have, let's say you have bicarb, Let's forget these number for a second. And let's say you have bicarb here instead. Bicarb here instead. Right here, and then your PCO2 are here. Therefore, this would be metabolic acidosis. Okay, metabolic acidosis. Plain and simple. Okay. Um, let's do another question and see. And hopefully you get the hang of this. Um, so pH... Let's say 7.5, uh, PCO2 is 37, and then bicarb is 29. So pH 7.5 is above above the 4.5, therefore we put it here on the alkalosis side. 37, 37 is between, you could see 37 is right here, between the 35 and 45, there, so therefore PCO2 is normal. And 29, 29 is above alkalosis, is above this side, therefore is, oh, nope. Therefore is 
is the oh, right here bicarb is on this side therefore this therefore this is what condition this is alkalosis right because its ph is on that side and this is metabolic alkalosis okay metabolic alkalosis okay so let's try a few more questions we're going to throw you a couple of curveball here something you should know because you're going to be doing it as well okay Okay, so let's do 7.47, and uh, let's not do that one, let's, let's do this one, 7.34, 30, and 20. Okay, so you could take a second to do to, to do this. You could pause this video. Seven point three four is on this side, so therefore pH is on this side. Okay, pH is on this side. PCO two is thirty. That means it's on to the right. It's actually right below below here. So PCO two on this side here, and bicarb. Bicarb is 20, is below 24, therefore it's on this side here. Okay, when we have this, now we have pH is on this side, therefore it's acidosis. Acidosis. What's underneath the pH, which is the bicarb, so this is metabolic acidosis. PCO2 is on this side, that means it's actually with compensation. This is with compensation. And it's, you could write it's fully, it's actually renal compensation. Okay, renal compensation. Actually, sorry, not renal. It's respiratory. Uh, it's actually with respiratory compensation because it's the CO2. Okay, because of the CO2 here causing the respiratory compensation. So that means you have metabolic acidosis, but your lungs trying to compensate. Okay, your lungs are trying to compensate. And this is uh, pretty much the same way. Uh, you know, it's up to you. I actually show you a couple of ways to do this. So if you don't like tic-tac-toe, you think that's uh, way too difficult, way too uh, confusing, you could, you know, welcome to use the other methods uh, that we talk about. Um, this one doesn't have an um, doesn't have an anion gap, so you can calculate an anion gap. But definitely, you could just look at this. So pH is thirty four, right? Thirty four does mean is acidosis, right? Acidosis. Um, and then you look at uh, this one goes down. This one goes down. Your P your PCO two also goes down as well. Right, when it goes down together, it's metabolic, metabolic. Okay, and you could calculate. Uh, I show you all of those ratio. I'll, I'll show you all of those ratio uh, to see how many, uh, how, how many whether it's um, acute or acute condition or chronic. Chronic in this case means it's uh, compensated. So uh, PCO two goes down by 
you look at the number 35 to 45, right? So this is go down by five. It actually, you do the math, it goes down by five. Whereas the bicarb only goes down by uh, four. Bicarbs go down by four. Okay. So therefore, this is the, uh, the cron, um, the, um, you see the, not a big gap here. You see, uh, not a lot of big gap here, right? Um, if you have acute condition, you're going to see a bigger gap, a huge number. So if you were to divide this by four, you're going to have one to about 1.08, um, okay? Uh, so it's very close. So it's like one to two approximately. So this is uh, more of the uh, chronic uh, type of condition instead of the acute condition. So this one, this way, you won't really tell whether it's compensated or not. Uh, sometimes you could, but sometimes you may not be able to. But uh, you have to calculate it out it, the other way to actually tell whether it's actually compensating or not. Uh, compensating or not. So you, the other way we were doing it actually will tell whether you actually were compensating or not. Okay. So keep those in mind. You're going to be using those uh, this week. Your question three, we already covered question one and two already uh, with your electrolytes. Uh, this is question three. Uh, you need to calculate out um, what is this, uh, whether it's metabolic acidosis, alkalosis, uh, respiratory acidosis, alkalosis, or whether they have a compensate or not, whether they are renal compensation, respiratory compensation, um, whether is there any compensation. Okay, you're gonna answer that in the in the form that I, I will attach the, um, the the link to the Google form. The link you have to put, fill out your name and also your email address. Uh, make sure you actually sign into your Google account uh, before you're completing the form. Okay, you're gonna answer this by based on these. And these are normal values okay, that I gave you. Normal values and these are the uh, the actual values. When you see these kind of questions, you could just skip the, you could skip all this. You could just go blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. You don't actually have to read this. It's actually right here uh, that you have to calculate it out. Um, by knowing these values, you should be able to calculate. You could actually do a tic-tac-toe that I show you, uh, be able to calculate these out very simply. Number four, question four. Again, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. You're going to calculate this out and then explain your answer why it's this way, okay? Uh, so by uh, pH 7.52, PCO2 is 35, um, bicarb is 29. Again, if it's, if it's on the number, uh, if it's on the number 35, 28, 24, 25, that means it's normal, completely normal, okay? So keep that in mind. Question five, you just have to pick one. What is the normal pH of the blood? Question five, normal pH of the blood. What is this? Okay. You can pause these videos. Uh, you could take picture of these questions. Um, so you have it in your phone when you answer, the, answer these questions on the Google form. Okay. Number six, what is the action of bicarb in the body? Pick one, A, B, C, D. Pick one. A, B, C, D. Okay, so take a picture of this. Uh, Rufus, 
Rufus has C. diff, uh, bacterial growth in the back of the bacteria. Uh, weird question. Has bacterial growth of the bacteria C. diff caused Clostridium difficile in his large intestine, resulting in chronic diarrhea. Uh, the ABG is below, pH is 7.62, PCO2 is 56, uh, bicarb is 33. What type of condition does uh, Rufus have? So you're going to answer and explain your answer, what that is. So those are the seven questions that you have to answer this week. Uh, you don't need to write any um, like you did last week for, for on the YouTube. You don't have to write any comments on the YouTube. All, all I need you to do is answer these questions on that Google form. Okay, answer those uh, seven questions on the Google form. There actually will be more than seven questions because you're going to include some of the uh, electrolyte stuff as well. There's actually three separate sections of electrolytes that you're gonna be answering. So make sure you have uh, you have your, uh, you know, you could look up stuff online, make sure it's not time uh, completely, to, but you could only go in one time. So make sure you don't go in and out, go in and out, just you could go in one time. So make sure you have everything ready before you go in um, and you complete those worksheets and then you're gonna turn it in, okay? And that's it for today. So thank you for watching. Uh, I hope you learned a few things. If you have any question, please let me know. Uh, let me know you have any question. I will be more than happy to answer it. If you like this, please press thumbs up uh, and click subscribe if you have not. So anytime I put new videos in, you will see those. Okay. And thank you for watching and have a wonderful day. Welcome, folks, to topic three uh, in UR631. Uh, we're going to talk about shocks today. Shocks. And this is going to be a big part of your test uh, that's coming up, including your midterm and your final. There's actually a huge portion that uh, we uh, cover about shocks. So, okay, without further ado, let's go to the next slide. Okay, so we want to talk about the definition of shock. What is this? What is shock? Uh, in essential, you could read the first one um, pretty uh, kind of technical per se, but in essential, what, what shock is, and it's all of the shocks is pretty much the same, is that you have an inadequate tissue perfusion. That means the tissue is not actually getting the oxygen that it actually needs. Uh, when it doesn't get oxygen that it, need, it needs, it becomes hypoxia, which leads to uh, ischemia, necrosis, and then eventually organ failures. And most most likely, this is not reversible. So this is the key things that I really would like you to remember. Uh, this cell is not getting enough enough oxygen, therefore it leads to that organ failures. So, so there are different stages of shock, and I'm sure you guys um, that work in a hospital, you guys know about this, or you in the ER, uh, you know what uh, the different stages are. So I'm not I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in terms of these stages. Uh, some people say there's only three stages. Some uh, saying there's four. So stage one is the initial uh, process. Then you have the stage two, which is uh, non-progressive or com compensated. Uh, this one is can be somewhat reversible or kind of stay at that stage. Three uh, is pretty much progressive. It's kind of keep going downhill and then four is uh, what we call refractory period which means that's the point of no return so it's one-way street from there so okay so the hallmark of shocks that you need to remember is that there's three things that happen 
And all shocks actually have this. All shocks have these three characteristics. One is uh, low BP, low blood pressure. The second one is low SRV, systemic vascular resistant. That's mean, since you, have, you think about it, if you have a low blood pressure, there's not going to be a lot of pressure pushing, uh, as giving that resistant in the blood. So think uh, your blood flow become kind of slow down. Okay, things are slowing down. Okay. Um, it, imagine if you have a pint of water and if you kind of take the water out, the blood volume goes down, the blood, the pressure inside is actually goes down, therefore there's not a lot of resistance coming out. So when you put your thumb at the end of that hose, um, that you don't feel a lot of resistance of that water because there's not a lot of pressure inside. The third one is low cardiac output. Uh, that's kind of pretty much hallmark to all of them, um, that you have a low uh, the heart is uh, have to work faster um, to push out the uh, the blood, but since it's such a low volume, uh, you don't have a lot of blood coming out of your heart, so it's low cardiac output. So these are the three hallmark of shock that you should know, and this is a good way for uh, if you want to classify shocks. This is something to kind of remember, memorize. Uh, these this chart I. Um, kind of easy way to follow okay so when you treat dealing with shock or treating shock first question you need to ask yourself is is this a main problem is this is uh, a thing that you are dealing with with shocks and then if it is um you ask yourself these various question um if there's a problem with the heart the heart doesn't work uh, we classify that as cardiogenic shock Okay, so that has pretty much pretty, pretty straightforward if something wrong with the heart the heart doesn't work that's cardiogenic shock uh, second one is obstruction. I'm going to talk about obstruction. So if somehow your blood vessel is being obstructed somehow in one or two ways, and uh, we'll talk about that in those three ways, um, three or four ways that those that can happen. If the blood vessel is being obstructed, uh, then the blood kind of restrict the blood flow. So think of it like a freeway. If you have an accident and the police, uh, the highway patrol, uh, block the whole entire freeway, so it's obstructing the flow. So somehow then you have less flow. The other side of the freeway become nice and light because you block everyone onto that one side. Okay. Uh, so that we call obstructive shock. Pretty straightforward. Okay, uh, this uh, last one is if you have a low fluid, uh, low fluid, that's mean we call that the hypovolemic shock, hypovolemic shock. There's also kind of similarly going this along the same line of the low fluids. Uh, if you have a kind of some type of change in the level of fluids, uh, your fluid kind of change somehow, different ways of your fluid change, your volume change. Um, this is called what we call distributive shock, distributive shocks. And under distributive shocks, uh, it, you could have to ask yourself, you know, what is the underlying problem of the distributive shocks? Distributive shock can actually divide into three more categories, three more categories. Okay, so these three categories. The first one is if there is any type of infection going on that's causing uh, the change in fluids. Okay, uh, if, it, there, if there is, that means we call that a septic shock septic shock and second one we ask is loss of sympathetic tone if there's something wrong with your brain not sending the um sending the information down the sympathetic um, nervous system somehow is not working um, and causing your blood level to kind of go down um, that we call that neurogenic shock so coming from your brain and the last but not least uh, this is the anaphylaxic shock anaphylaxic shock so that's when you have uh, some type of allergies that's going on. So we'll cover all of these. So again, uh, this is a good chart for you to keep in terms of shocks. Um, you could write on your own, pretty straightforward. Um, you kind of keep it organized this way and think of it this way. Uh, it will help you with your exams. The first one we're going to talk about is cardiogenic shock, cardiogenic shocks. 
Okay. With cardiogenic shocks, uh, you have these are the causes. You could have, you know, myocarditis, inflammation of your heart. Um, you could history of MIs if you had tons of MIs in the past. Uh, aortic valve stenosis or mitral valve stenosis. The hardening of those valves can kind of decrease uh, the volume as well. Okay, uh, you could have arrhythmia like tachy or bradycardia that could actually lead to this as well. One of the more um, horrible condition is dilated cardiomyopathy. That's when your heart actually balloons up like a nice little ball. So uh, we'll cover that in the heart section and congenital heart diseases. So any of these could actually lead to cardiogenic shock. So what happened in cardiogenic shock? A cardiogenic shock, usually you have problem pumping the blood out. So any of those problems that I just mentioned to you, like all of these problems, uh, you can see is the failing of the heart. Your heart is un un you know, unable to pump uh, officially somehow. Okay, the blood is not going out. So therefore, this means you have a low blood vol volume. Your heart has become a stasis, or static. Uh, things not, does not move. So you actually have low blood volume, low cardiac output. If you remember, cardiac output has to do with two things. One has to do with stroke volume, the amount of blood actually being pumped out of the heart, and also uh, has to do with heart rate. Um, so the stroke volume definitely goes down because you're not getting the volume. You have the low blood volume. Your volume goes down. Therefore, your cardiac output goes down. To compensate, your body actually increased the heart rate. Your, heart, your body say, hey, uh, we don't get blood to the rest of the body. Right now, you know, we don't have blood. So your body uh, use that compensation mechanism to increase that heart rate, uh, to make your heart rate go faster. But even then, your, uh, your body is going to shock because this doesn't work, because you have such a low volume of blood. This usually triggers, if you have low, low blood pressure, usually it triggers the RAS system, the uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, um, catecholamine to actually increase the epinephrine, norepinephrine, so trying to help with sympathetic nervous system to kick in. So this is, think of it as like uh, your last hooray, hurrah, so your body's trying to say, hey, perk up, we need to do everything we can to perk you up, uh, to, to get the, the pressure going back up, get the blood moving again. Okay, so these are all this, including blood shunning as well. Okay, it's trying to move blood, uh, forcing blood more volume uh, can be able to push out of the heart. Um, so again, um, you with the cardiogenic shock, you're going to have increased uh, systemic uh, uh, venous uh, res resistance. Okay, and you're going to have increased systemic venous resistance because um, your blood is way slowing down. Your blood is slowing down. Think of your your veins. Your blood in your vein is not uh, comfortable. Blood is not pushing back to the heart. Remember the the, the artery is the muscle one that kind of pumping, but the vein is actually just relaxing, uh, and it actually require your your volume, the pressure to push that blood back, and also require the your muscle to move. So those are the two things. Since uh, there's not a lot of volume. Uh, therefore, you actually have re increased more resistance, pushing back, uh, making your heart works even harder. So overall, you're going to have low O2 because you're not getting the blood to the rest of your body. Uh, when you have low O2, also, you in turn having low ATPs as well. Uh, you're going to have increased lactic acid. Therefore, eventually, you're going to end up, since with lactic acids, you're going to end up with tons of protons, hydrogen protons floating around in your body. Uh, in topic three, we talked about that already. So... Um, so that with tons of hydrogen proton floating around your body, that's going to lead to metabolic acidosis as well. Okay, so uh, how do we treat cardiogenic shock? Uh, basically treating the underlying causes. So if you have MI, treat the MI first with angioplasty and thrombolytic treatment. Um, first one, we definitely, after you do that, uh, if there's other causes, you want to kind of decrease iso uh, isotonic fluids, uh, increase vasopressor like epinephrine, 
uh, all of these will increase inotrope, which means contractility of the heart, keep the heart pumping, um, especially the last one. Aminone uh, 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 is actually really help increase that heart contraction. Okay, uh, all else fail, you could actually also do the intra-aortic balloon and pump, uh, trying to help pumping that blood, pumping the blood throughout the whole body because your heart is giving up. Okay. Second one is called the obstructive shocks. Obstructive, obstructive shocks. Okay. So there's different types of causes of obstructive shocks. The first one that we're going to talk about is called the tension pneumothorax. Tension pneumothorax. Tension pneumothorax usually caused by trauma, um, or you, you could have a pneumothorax, um, which can cause by infections and other things as well that lead to pneumothorax. We'll talk more about that when we get to respiratory. But let's say uh, you breakish the uh, your skin, so someone kind of stab you uh, in a chest, but doesn't actually stab through your lungs. So what happened is the uh, the pressure around your your lungs actually uh, become increased uh, because it would be the same as pressure as the outside. Technically, the pressure around your lungs is the, the lowest of all. Okay, you have the pressure outside. Uh, pressure inside your lungs and pressure around your lungs. The one, the least amount of pressure is the one that around your lungs. Whereas uh, the next one would be the pressure inside your lungs and then the pressure outside in the the atmosphere, the atmosphere, uh, atmospheric pressure. So uh, if you actually someone stab you, this pressure will kind of equalize the pressure outside. What happens is then you actually have this push pushing the pressure. Um, the lungs actually start to constrict it as well because this, uh, the pressure actually become greater than inside the lungs. So that's, think of it like you're going deeper down in the ocean as things start to squeeze in. So same thing if you actually have this pressure goes up, then your lung actually being pressed in, squeezing in. So as the process of squeezing in, it actually squeeze into this SVC, IVC, the superior and inferior vena cava. It could also uh, uh, squeeze into the aorta, squeezing into the pulmonary trunk, pulmonary arteries, and pulmonary veins. So uh, so this why this is why they call it obstructive because it's being the pressure being squeezing it. Okay, uh, easy way to see this you're gonna see the increase in uh, jugular vein pressure, jugular vein pressure. You might see JVD jugular vein distension as well. Okay, so that's the first one obstructive tension pneumothorax. The second one is called the uh, pericardial tamp tamponade. Okay, uh, pericardial tamponade. What pericardial tamponade is? Uh, you have this pericardial sac. And usually you have these fluid inside the sacs to kind of keep your heart nice and smooth um, when, when it pumps. So uh, reduce friction. Every now and then, these patients would actually have increase of these fluids, somehow increased pressure inside this um, inside this area, the pericardial sac. Uh, when you actually have increased pressure inside, it's kind of like you squeezing the heart. You actually have someone squeezing the heart. Uh, just think of like you just grabbing that heart and just squeezing it. So when you actually have that increased pressure, you increase you increase the uh, the pressure inside the heart as well. Okay, this is why they call obstructive because you're obstructing the heart. You're actually being push um, pushing and squeezing the heart the key thing to remember for the cardiac tamponade is this pex triad pex triad easy way to remember is all d's three d's uh, decrease in bp distend the jugular vein so jugular vein distension and diminish heart sound so the heart sound the aortic sound uh, when you're listening to your heart okay uh, we'll talk about that later on when we get to the heart uh, lecture when you're listening to the heart, those heart spot, uh, these valves, these sound become diminished. It become harder to hear. Okay, so this is the the cardiac tamponade, the triad. Something you might want to remember. Uh, the last one, the cause of the last one is the pulmonary embolism. 
with PE, uh, you have blockage. There's definitely a blockage. You have these thrombi uh, emboli actually float in uh, into the heart and then it kind of get blocked into the lungs. Okay, so with the pulmonary embolism, you have since it's blocking, so the blood could actually come back out and fill the, the ventricles. Therefore, you have the uh, decreased EDV in diastolic volume, the, the volume before it contracts. So if you cannot fill the heart to the volume that it needs to, to, to do so, therefore you decrease the stroke volume, the volume that you're squeezing outside as well. So you decrease the volume that's coming in, therefore you decrease the volume that's going out. Therefore, you decrease the overall volume that your heart actually pumps out to the rest of your body. Therefore, you decrease the blood volume and blood pressure. And in this, a lot of these cases, you're going to see that it actually builds up lactic acid as well. Okay, Lactic acid, again, could lead to metabolic uh, acidosis. And also, in this case, could lead to what we call hypoxemic hypoxia. Hypoxemic hypoxia. Okay, It's a condition where you're not getting the oxygen uh, anywhere. Okay, so obstructive treatment. Uh, obviously, if you have um, treat, uh, you have obstructive condition. Uh, you definitely want to give um, O2 oxygen, isotonic fluids, and some vasopressor as well to increase um, to increase the fluids and also to increase the pressure inside of um, your vascular. Next one is the hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock. As it as it sounds, you actually have low blood volume. Low blood volume. So. When you have low blood volume, somehow we're going to talk about causes, uh, hemorrhage versus non-hemorrhage. But if you have low blood volume, what that means is you really just have low volume of uh, intravascular volume. So your blood volume inside your vessels goes down. Um, and usually when that does, when you actually your blood pressure goes down, your volume goes down, you, you again activate the RAS system, RAS, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, to increase uh, your, your blood pressure. And also you're going to activate ADH as well. Okay, so it's very kind of given to a lot of these uh, very similar. They, they, if your blood volume goes down, your blood pressure goes down, that's your kind of automatic, your body, how your body actually kicks in. You have two types. Again, you have the hemorrhage and versus non-hemorrhage, and we'll cover both of those. First one, we'll look at the causes of hemorrhage. Hemorrhage, as you can see, uh, you have trauma, GI bleed, postpartum, ectopic pregnancy, uh, aortic, uh, abdominal aortic uh, aneurysm rupture, so if the AAA um, rupture that's pretty bad. Hemoptysis, you're throwing up blood, so also pretty bad. So any of these, you're actually losing blood. You're actually losing a huge volume of blood. Um, most likely, AAA probably won't get to you, even in, in the ER, even a clinic. They'll be uh, dead on arrival, usually. Okay. Um, so hypovolemic shock, uh, also you have the non-hemorrhage uh, reason, so this is not, not a blatant, like you're losing actual blood, but you're still losing fluids, other kind of fluids that could cause to lower your blood volume. So the first one, kind of obvious, you actually have diarrhea or vomiting, you're throwing up or you're pooping, things, pooping stuff out, okay? Third degree blur, burns, uh, third degree burns, uh, severe burns that causing you to lose a lot of fluids. Uh, salt wasting, and you get reading of salt, uh, sodium for waterfall sodium, so you're actually peeing out those. The bound obstruction, uh, you have bowel obstruction, you know, you cannot get rid of things, so uh, sting, uh, sting will actually, things will start to, get rid of different ways through your kidney and through you, through other means as well. So you can get get rid of glucose or minerals through your feces. Uh, therefore, then, you know, your body will actually try to get rid of things through your kidneys. Uh, you will pee it out instead. 
acute pancreatitis. Uh, that's the inflammation of your pancreas, and that could also throw the balance of glucose. Uh, glucose, if you have tons of glucose, uh, build up hyperglycemic uh, with DKA. Therefore, you're forcing the glucose out because now you have a high level of glucose inside your blood, and that's going to leave either through your skin or through your uh, urine, and then eventually water will follow those as well. So hypovolemic shock, what do you see? You're seeing a decrease of cardiac output, uh, increase of SRV, I'm sorry, SVR, sorry, SVR, uh, tachycardia, hypoxia, low blood pressure, so it's pretty similar to all of those. Something to remember, uh, these uh, differences when you have hypovolemic shock, you could see an uh, increase in hematocrit when you run CBC or decrease in hematocrit. Most likely it's decreased because you're washing everything out, but if it's increased, that means you have a patient is actually having hemoconcentration going on. Okay, you have a building up of red blood cells. So you're losing the water, you're losing the minerals and water, but you're actually having the uh, red blood cells start to build up. Uh, the other thing you see, if you actually have um, cyanosis, uh, you could actually losing a lot of blood to the point that you may see cyanosis in the lip, tongue, fingertips, and toes, so extremities, and anything that's small, so your tongues and your toes, uh, your lips as well. Okay. Treatment, if they're losing fluids, you give them fluid. Uh, crystalloids, uh, you have lactate ringer, uh, normal saline. You could actually give albumin as well because if you're losing, uh, you, you want to maintain the oncotic pressure. So basically stabilizing colloid osmotic pressure. We'll talk about that next week, I believe. Oh, actually, it's in topic three, yep. So um, uh, had a starch as well, IV. That's a good treatment to actually kind of build up that, stabilize that uh, colloid osmotic pressure. Um, and also, if you're losing a lot of blood, one thing to keep in mind is they could get cold pretty quickly because you don't have the blood to warm you up. So you want to kind of help them prevent them going into hypothermia as well. Okay, so key things. So um, next group, I think we'll stop here and then we'll start a video, another video on distributive shocks. Well, welcome back, folks. Uh, we're going to talk about the distributive shocks. Uh, remember, distributive actually divide into three uh, three categories. And basically, this is you just kind of losing fluid. Uh, kind of very similar to, um, to hypovolemic shock, but those are actual fluid that you're losing. But this one, there's other causes, things that actually could cause you changes in those fluids. Okay, so what this is, distributive shock, we just want to kind of clarify it. Um, when you have the low BP in distributive shock, it's not from the low cardiac output. Your heart is fine, your heart is pumping blood just fine. Um, but the problem is you have a key term to remember in distributive shocks uh, is vasodilation. Okay, vasodilation actually happened through all of them, all three of them with the distributive shocks. So with the vasodilation, this is the main culprit uh, that caused your BP to actually lower. Okay, it's because of this, your BP goes down. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind. So with this uh, first one, we're going to talk about septic shock. Septic shock is uh, the fun one to really talk about. Uh, septic shock usually caused by the pathogen. You actually have the bugs coming in, the bacteria, the viruses coming in, causing uh, craziness inside your, your, your blood. So the first thing that uh, the bacteria infection comes in, um, Let's give one specific example. This is the, the nasty one usually. Uh, is the gram-negative bacteria. Any type of gram-negative bacteria, bacteria. What they do is they actually release something called endotoxins. Endotoxin. They release uh, the chemicals inside your inside your blood. Endotoxin. And what that endotoxin does is actually damage, damage your, your endothelial linings and damage your tissue around it. 
Okay. Once it actually damaged the tissue, the your tissue then in turn release something called prostaglandin and also leukotrienes. Prostaglandin and leukotriene uh, that's from your cell trigger the mast cells, this guy here, the mast cells, one of the immune system to come over. Mast cells uh, went crazy, absolutely bonkers when they actually see this endotoxin and these bacteria. So what they do is they even release more, more prostaglandin, more leukotriene. Uh, the key one you want to remember with mast cells is they release histamine. They release histamine. Okay, and proteins. What histamine does is they actually vasodilate your blood vessels and also make your blood vessel become more permeable, meaning that they think of it as more holes in these. So bringing, um, making your blood vessel become bigger and become more permeable. So hopefully they're kind of trying to get people here, get the calories to actually save the day. So trying to get the other white, white blood cells, uh, trying to get uh, liquid, trying to push the liquid to go out or trying to do things, push all these bad bugs outside of your outside of your vascular system, your blood. Okay. In the meantime, what it does is, is actually, since it increased the uh, permeability, which means that things are leaking out, things are leaking out of your blood, when things are leaking out, you actually have a lower blood volume, therefore lower blood pressure. On top of this, this doesn't help. Um, we talked about this complement system last week on topic two. Complement system then kind of get triggered as well because these are the bad guys, the bacteria, the bad guys floating around. So complement system got triggered. Um, the three three C three A and C three five C five A, those become activated. C three C five become activated. So what they do is they actually increase even more vasodilation, increase permeability, uh, rec uh, recruiting more uh, like macrophage and phagocytic cells coming over, recruiting more WBC to come over to hey let's fight these guys off. Um, in turn, with these phagocytes coming over, these white blood cells coming over, what they do is they actually increase, release interleukin-1 and TNF-alpha. Okay, interleukin-1, TNF-alpha. Interleukin-1 and TNF-alpha go straight to your hypothalamus, to your brain, where it does control your temperature. And your brain hypothalamus then in turn release uh, prostaglandin E2, prostaglandin E2, that cause will lead to causing extreme fever, so spiking up your temperature to kill these bacteria, to slow down these bacteria. So something to remember, the interleukin-1 TNF-alpha causing prostaglandin E2 from your hypothalamus causing you to have fever. On the other hand, interleukin-6 uh, that these phagocyte release then goes to the liver can actually cause your liver to have acute phase reactant proteins acute phase reactant protein, okay, causing your liver to become more responsive to, to trying to get filter these bad guys out. Uh, interleukin-8 is also re released by these phagocytes. Even uh, ask for more backup, uh, ask sending out message for more calories uh, to actually create more phagocytosis. Uh, all of this could actually damage Okay, damage your endothelial lining. Um, when it's damaged endothelial lining, this is what happened next. Um, it actually leads a couple more um, factor, um, which we won't get into. But what that does is is prevent uh, your plasmid to form, your plasmid, your clotting factor um, to fo to form. So if it prevents clotting factor to form from the outside, your inside actually start to build up these microvascular occlusion, okay, microvascular occlusion leading to ischemia inside your blood vessels. So that's one. The other thing that it could do is, uh, if it's severe enough, it actually literally trigger tissue factor three. That's literally going to promote 
a lot of clotting factor. This is telling your body, hey, go ahead and clot. We need to clot everywhere now. So, uh, and if you start clotting everywhere, you're gonna run out of your clotting factors. And eventually, you're gonna get a condition called DIC. And this all starts because of tissue factor three. We'll talk more about that in week four, topic four and five. I believe, yep, topic four and five, we'll talk more about uh, these clotting factors, uh, folks. So septic shock, what you're going to see, you're going to see, again, bl low blood pressure, low blood pressure. Your SRV is going to be low, low systemic uh, vascular resistance. Um, you're going to have high cardiac output. You're going to, your heart compensate because um, things are slowing down. You, you have vasodilation, things are slowing way down. So your heart has to pump a lot of, really fast. The key thing to remember for septic shock is this. You're going to have a high O2 sap, really high O2 sap and high cardiac output. Okay. Remember, your heart is not truly affected by this. Your heart is still working properly. So when you actually heart kicks in saying that, hey, because you are vasodilate throughout your whole entire body, uh, so your heart has to pump faster. When it's pumped faster, your cardiac output goes up. Okay, your cardiac output goes up. This is the only shocks, the only type of shocks that your cardiac output goes up. So this is one worth remembering because if you see oh which one would go up uh, which what kind of shock it is if you have a high cardiac output for me high cardiac output you have septic shock again you have tons of o2 sac which means that you have tons of oxygen in your blood but uh, you're going to have a low o2 delivery which means that your cell is not truly getting the oxygen it's kind of like your oxygen is just kind of floating inside your blood but it's just like just think of like a bus the bus that the bus still running but it it never stopped into you know letting people off out of the bus or into the bus it just keep running on the street so there's tons of bus running there's tons of o2 in your blood but there's no stopping these bus uh, the bus just keep on going it's not doesn't actually stop and exchange that oxygen okay so how do we treat it? We use uh, antibiotic. Usually, if you don't know what it is, we would use the Ross rectum, like uh, ceftriaxone or Zosin, uh, to actually kind of cover the cover the range. But once you know you do the culture, you know exactly specifically what kind of bugs it is. Then you could actually use more specific um, antibiotics for those um, for those bacteria. Uh, you want to push for fluids like normal saline, um, lactate drinker, vasopressants. Um, Vasopressors, uh, any medication can increase your blood pressure. You want to do that. If you start having clots, then you want to do to break down those clots. You want to use heparin um, and warfarin, actually warfarin, to, to, to break down those clots. Okay. Next one is a quick one is anaphylaxic shock, which is has to do with allergic reaction. Usually you could get like from bee stings, food allergies, drug allergies, contrast. Um, the key thing to remember is type 1 hypersensitivity, which IgE. So something you should know for your exam. So what happened with these folks is you have these antigen, these bacteria, bugs coming in. Okay, these bugs coming in. So the first thing that you're going to have respond is the macrophages. Macrophages uh, come in and say hello to these lovely folks. And you remember what attached onto this macrophage to send to the uh, the T cells. They actually bind together. Um, this is from our week two. You remember. You should remember, I hope you do remember, this is uh, MHC2, um, MHC2, which uh, binds with CD4 on T cells, CD4 on T cells. Okay, so MHC2, remember there's two class one and two, uh, so two is binding with four. Okay, um, so what that does is it's actually placing these, these guys, um, 
kind of trigger the memory T cells saying, hey, the old guys is coming back. Uh, and then MH, um, these macrophages then release interleukin-5 along with other one too as well, interleukin-2 and 4, but uh, the main one is the 5. The 5 actually activate the B cells. B cells then release IgE. IgE actually goes on to uh, mast cells. IgE goes on to mast cells, uh, right on the receptor on the mast cell, right like that. And when the antigen is actually attached onto these uh, mast cell, the mast cell went bonkers. Uh, they just went crazy. They just released tons and tons of histamine. Uh, this is, could be uh, overactive hypersensitivity, meaning that they just way, went way, way too much, way overboard. Um, uh, they just uh, wanting to go, you know, 10,000% uh, going on top of what they require to do. So, okay. So when you have the histamine reaction, that's lead to vasodilation. So when you have release of mast cells, mast cell release histamine that you have vasodilation. Again, this is a theme of uh, distributive uh, shocks, vasodilations. Then you have the decrease in blood volume, decrease in SRV, decrease in blood pressure. That could lead to like itching, rashes, you're going to see. And the other thing it does uh, with with these with a the histamine it what it does is actually it constrict it dilates your blood vessels but it's actually constrict your smooth muscle uh, so your smooth muscle are the uh, involuntary stuff uh, involuntary muscles like your breathing muscles your uh, your heart your gi all of those are smooth muscles so and what this histamine could do it could lead to respiratory distress less respiratory distress um, also, the other thing that histamine can do is to create uh, edema. You're going to have um, like the orbital edema, uh, oral edema, and you could have orbital as well around the eye. You have, um, you know, edema everywhere in your hand, your face. Uh, the worst one would be the laryngeal edema. This is where you had developed edema right in your throat, your voice blocks. So this could actually uh, suppress uh, so you won't be able to breathe. And when you cannot breathe, you could lead to death. So how do we treat it? We use EpiPen, epinephrine, that has caused vasoconstriction. So that caused vasoconstriction. Uh, since you have tons and tons of histamine release, what you want to do is give them antihistamine. Uh, one thing to note is that you might want to monitor these folks usually uh, at least two or three hours. There's about 20% of the population who actually have these allergic respond tends to have the second wave. So if you actually give them EpiPen and then send them home right away, they could actually have another episode uh, two or three hours later and they'll be showing up again in your ER or your clinic. So keep them there for a couple of hours just to make sure they don't have the second episode. If they do, then you could treat them right away with the EpiPen and antihistamine shots. Okay. Okay, next last one is the neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock, this is from your brain your brain um, from your nervous system and the most common uh, most common neurogenic shock is the acute spinal cord injury acute spinal cord injury right here uh, this is where you have the autonomic blockade autonomic blockade so instead of you know, your brain could send information down to your spine and then go into your thoracic to the rest of your body it cannot do that you have that blockade uh, so when you have this blockade, what happens is you have the unopposed vagal tone. That means you cannot send a sympathetic tone. As your sympathetic nervous system is not working. Your sympathetic tone is not working. Therefore, your heart slows down. Um, you, your body cannot vasoconstrict because usually that's what happens. You actually need vasoconstriction to increase the blood pressure. Since it cannot vasoconstrict, the opposite happens. Your, body, your blood vessels become dilated instead. So therefore, you decrease this SVR, SVR, and you decrease your blood pressure as well. Okay. 
So the treatment, you use IV fluids, uh, like normal saline, lactic linker. So a lot of time using corticosteroids does help uh, improve the condition as well, um, getting rid of some of the liquids um, uh, to actually create a better flow and um, actually increase the liquid to get um, to increase the better flow inside your vascular system. Uh, the other one that you definitely should do is to increase your blood pressure is by giving these vasopressor as well. Um, epinephrine, atropine, all of these could actually help with neurogenic shocks. The last thing I want to cover uh, for this is the chart. Okay, you have this chart. Um, this is all everything we cover, the cardiogenic, hypovolemic, septic, neurogenic, anaphylaxic. So these three is the dis uh, distributive, uh, and you have obstructive, uh, hypovolemic, and cardi cardiogenic. Okay. So the first one I want to talk about is the cardiogenic. If you can see, uh, most of these, the first first column is the cardiac output. Every column on the cardiac output is going down. Okay, every column of cardiac output is going down. The only one that except going up is the septic shock. Okay, the septic shock. This is why I want, would you know, want to stress this enough is that remember to the way to tell the septic shock is their cardiac output is still high. Okay, your cardiac output is still high. So the stroke volume is high, the the heart rate is high, therefore your uh, cardiac output is also high. So that's something to definitely remember. Um, that's the first column. The second column is your heart rate. Your heart rate, every single one of them goes up. The only one that goes down is your neurogenic. Your neurogenic is goes going down. And the reason being is because your systematic tone is not working. Your sympathetic, not systematic, sympathetic tone is not working, meaning that your sympathetic system cannot kick in. If you can, your sympathetic system cannot kick in, therefore your heart rate has no compensatory uh, system with your you know, vasodilation. So your heart rate uh, is going down. So keep that in mind. So two things, uh, you know, look for these two things. So if cardiac output goes up, that's septic shock. If neurogen, if uh, heart rate goes down, that's neurogenic. Easy, easy, uh, you can see. Okay. The other column that I want you to look at is the SRV. SRV is the systematic uh, vascular resistant. Okay, systemic vascular resistant. All of them goes down because all of these, um, when you have a dilation, when you have the obstruction, your resistance goes down. You actually have no force pushing pushing it back throughout throughout your whole body, vascular systemic vascular system, meaning that your whole blood vessel does not a lot of resistance because your blood volume goes down. Okay, the only two that goes up uh, is cardiogenic and hypovolemic. The reason those goes up is because these are the compensatory me mechanism that your heart have to raise up your your, uh, your heart rate. When it raises up your heart rate, um, you actually, even though the volume is down, you, your heart is not working the way it's supposed to, uh, the volume is down, uh, your body somehow trying to compensate by uh, increase those resistance. So in hoping that um, your blood pressure, your blood volume keep going back up again. Okay. The other column I want to point out is the O2 sat here, O2 sat. The only one again that goes up the O2 sat is the uh, septic, okay, the septic shock. This is, you have tons of O2, we talked about this already, you have tons of O2, but there's no delivery. You have tons of buses riding, riding around, but you're not going to stop any bus stop at all to let people off on, okay, so the O2 sat goes up. The other one I circle on here is the uh, PCWP. 
Next, PCWP is pulmonary um, wedge pressure, pulmonary car uh, cardio wedge pressure. So this is the uh, the pressure inside between your lungs and your heart, uh, inside the uh, the blood pressure in there. Okay. The reason I uh, circle that is usually when you have obstructive, you actually have something blocking inside your lungs and your arteries inside your lungs. Like you have PE, you have um, you know. Um, um, tension pneumothorax, things like that, uh, that kind of blocking, obstructing the blood pressure and the blood vessels inside your lungs and your heart. Uh, so that pressure actually goes up uh, due to the pressure kind of building and it could lead to rupture as well. It could definitely lead to rupture. Um, and then CVP is uh, the venous pressure, the cardiac venous pressure, and that could sometimes stay normal or sometimes could go up and down. The only one that would go up is the cardiogenic because the, the venous pressure would go up because your heart is not working, so things become really stale stasis. So then that pressure goes up. Okay. Uh, I think that's it. So if you have any questions, please let me know. This is just kind of a quick overview of the uh, the shocks and things that you might want to know what you know what different types of shocks that we have and things that you should know for the shocks. I would definitely uh, recommend you know taking picture of this graph, this chart. You could create your own chart as well. The key things definitely you want to know is the cardiac output. Uh, you want to know the SRV and SVR, the heart rate, um, the O2 sap, and possibly the um, PCWR. Okay, so these are four or five things that you definitely need to know, to be aware of. Which one goes up, which one goes down, uh, and I mentioned kind of key terms to those already. So, okay. Once again, uh, thank you for watching, and I'll see you in the next video.